episode number 44, Ken McDonald. All right, cut to edge of stage. Great. All right, color frost. Check. One, two, three. Check. Stand by, please. Edge to half. House out. Lighting cue is one. Welcome back to the Tuttle Block, a podcast about Canadian theatre designers, their history, and their craft. I am, as usual, your host, Michael Cruz, and this time I have an interview with set and costume designer Ken McDonald from his home in Toronto in May of 2017. It has once again been a busy few months, as you can imagine. I have only been able to get to the show now at the beginning of 2018, but I should be releasing several more episodes over the next couple of months, so hang in there. Thanks again for your interest and enthusiasm about the podcast. We have, can you believe it, about 2,000 people downloading content every month. And I want to thank every one of you for your support. If you wanted to continue supporting the podcast, uh, please consider going over to patreon.com and sponsor the show at just a dollar an episode. It would really help me to carve out time and make sure that I continue to bring you the high-quality interviews that you've enjoyed in the past. Uh, it is website renewal time again, uh, and I had to just purchase a new recorder because I you know, dropped the other one in the summer, and it is... Uh, irreparable klutz. And as a full-time student, uh, it is a bit taxing, as you can imagine. So so any help you can to give to support Canadian theatre history would be appreciated. Uh, if you have already donated, you would not be hearing this message. So uh, that's something you could be avoiding. Yeah, just saying. I was hoping to send out this episode without a rant, but I uh, I just can't do it this time. Uh, as it, uh, it'll be a couple weeks since this news broke, you have no doubt heard of the civil lawsuit brought by Patricia Fagan, Kristen Booth, Diana Bentley, and Hannah Miller against the now former artistic director of Soul Pepper Theatre Company, Albert Schultz. The million-dollar lawsuit alleges sexual misconduct and conduct and harassment by Mr. Schultz over the past, what, 17 years against the actors uh, in, who are suing him during their time at the company. And it is simply appalling. And I'm not going to rehash the gory details of events that will be familiar to so many of my sisters in the theater profession. It, of course, goes without saying that I stand beside these women in their courageous decision to punch back at another powerful man in theater, a man whose control over their careers ensured their silence for far too long. We have work to do, my friends, to bring equity to Canadian theatre. In a business that purports to push the envelope of progressiveness and tell stories that reflect society back to the audience in a way that tries to make people question their assumptions, it is a very sad and angering irony that the same power structures that allow powerful men to belittle, berate, and yes, assault women are also entrenched in Canadian theatre. And we're not talking about only the great regionals, but also in the training institutions themselves. I encourage you to listen to the interview on CBC Metro Morning from January 3rd, 2018, where actors Courtney Lancaster and Leslie McBay speak about the systemic issues in the way that we train women to be silent about this kind of behavior. I must say that I was very embarrassed to be facing this kind of idea for the first time in my life. I had not considered that, in fact, the way that we learn how to tell stories in theater school actually encourages people to be victimized and to stay silent, and to normalize what is quite awful behavior. Uh, And uh, in this interview on CBC with Courtney and Leslie sort of detailed in a very challenging and difficult manner this kind of behavior, and uh, it really is a call for all theater schools to look at the way that they train actors 
um, so we can prevent this behavior in the future. We need to live up to the ideals we set for ourselves and be an example to the society we criticize. We need to build a theater community that gives women equity and power, and we need to call out and put a stop to this violence at once. We need to demand that not only the companies that employ serial sexual harassers clean their houses, but that the unions that represent actors in this country stop sweeping this under the rug. The stories are legion that tell of companies firing the person who was assaulted and complained. This needs to stop. Now, I want to give a shout-out to Canadian Actors' Equity. They've stepped up in the last several months and produced a program called Not In Our Space, a new respect in the workplace policy and program that is meant to be a proactive uh, initiative that emphasizes, quote, collective oversight, uh, according to their statement from January 3rd. Please see the members area on the website for more information about this program, and I hope this will continue the frank conversation occurring online about workplace bullying and move us toward a safer culture in Canadian theatre. Now, there's no way to, well, delicately segue from this quite awful and yet inspiring story. So I will just move on and say to Patricia, Kristen, Diana, and Hannah that I stand with you, and I am sure that I speak for the listeners of this podcast when I say thank you for your courage and your resilience. Ken McDonald is a set and costume designer now based in Toronto, but who practiced his first 20 years in Vancouver. He has created over 100 productions with his partner Morris Panich, including iconic plays like The Overcoat and Vigil, and designed 100 more for companies like Canadian Stage, Vancouver Playhouse, the Belfry Theatre, and the Shaw and Stratford Festivals. His work has toured internationally, and he can often be seen in San Francisco and Washington, D.C. Just a couple of notes from the show. I encourage you to go to Ken's website, kenandmorris.com, to see the incredible work by Ken McDonald. It'll really help give a visual vocabulary to our discussion. And second, we talk about a designer, uh, quote, from OCAD, unquote, who trained as a sculptor and is now a theater designer. And, of course, we could remember her name. It's awful. This is, of course, Shannon Lee Doyle, who was a guest on The Bellows last year. Uh, And I just wanted to... um, to make that right, and when we get to that point in the podcast, it is indeed Shannon Lee Doyle. You can find a link to her work, as well as all the other curated links from this podcast in the show notes at thetitleblock.com. Now, here's my interview with designer Ken McDonald. Ken McDonald has spent 40 years designing in theater in Canada, uh, and from unusual beginnings, he's found himself working across Canada in every major theatre, working on theatre, opera, any dance? Oh, a couple, long Long time ago. Doing sets and costumes. Uh, Ken, welcome to the title block. Thank you very much. Awesome, it's great to have you here. Thank you. So let's start, I've been so excited to talk to you for so many many months now. Uh, Let's start from where you began. You did your original training in Art history, right? In Teachers College? Um, I went to uh, UBC, University of British Columbia, and uh, I planned to be a teacher. So I have a degree, my Bachelor of Education uh, from UBC in Art Education. So my master, my, you know, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to paint and draw. And at that time, I had amazing profs, Gordon Smith, who's still around, is an amazing BC artist, and Sam Black. And they were kind of my mentors in, in terms of painting teachers. And they were in the education department. So my sister was a teacher, my brother-in-law. I thought, well, okay. And uh, I went to it really because I, I loved these guys and I wanted to study under them. And then all of a sudden, five years later, I was a teacher. Right. Yeah, that's <laughs> awesome. And uh, this would have been in the late 60s? No. Uh, oh, I suppose it was. Uh, yeah, uh, I graduated high school in 1967. It's my 50th 
reunion this year. I can't go. Well, I could go, but it's all the way back to Vancouver. Um, and uh, so 67 to 72. Great. And then how did you find your way into theater? I mean, a lot of people come to theater from different jobs, but this was, you were established as a teacher already. Uh, yeah. And how did you find your way doing theater design, especially? Well, when I was in university, I happened to go at an amazing time. Um, and there was, <clears throat> there was a, a club, basically, called Musok Musical Society, UBC Musical Society, and we did a lot of musicals. So I was in those musicals, like West Side Story and Hello, Dolly stuff. But also, so were uh, Brent Carver, Richard Azunian, Merrick Norman, Goldie Semple, uh, and at that time, John Gray and Eric Peterson and all these people were all at UBC. We were all there at the same time and all doing theater. And so I had a great love of theater, but I wasn't a very good actor. I can sing, but I can't really act. <laughs> One review when you're talking about Last Call, this show that we'll talk about that Morris and I wrote, a, a, a famous quote that I just, Morris and I still laugh at all every day practically is the, my, the curiously wooden performance of Ken McDonald. <laughs> curiously wooden is really... About says it all. <laughs> uh, so how I found my way in is um, I taught high school for five years and I was a bit of a hippie. I had I have no hair now, but I had long hair and beads and I wore cutoffs and I I covered my room with parachute silk and I covered all the uh, blackboards so that you couldn't see that. I had a stereo blasting at all times. Mm -hmm. I never marked anyone late because I could never make it on time myself. And school started at like 8.45 in Richmond. And so I always chose the best student every year. I could suss that out pretty quickly. And uh, I gave them a key to the room mm -hmm. so that they would let students in because I would never make it on time. Right. And I would sneak in the back stairs and come upstairs because the, the principal had only one leg and only in five years only made, like he, he had a wooden leg. I think in five years he only made it upstairs twice. So I knew he would never find me. <laughs> and then after my first, after the first class of the first period, I would sneak downstairs and sign in as if I'd forgotten because you had to sign in. Um, so, I, I, but what happened was... Um, my really best friend in the world, Sheila McCarthy, was going out with Don Shipley at the time, who was also a dear friend, and he was opening and starting the Belfry Theatre with Patty Armstrong. And he needed a, someone to design a set, and I had done a little drawing for him once for something, and, and Sheila said, well, my friend Ken can draw, literally like my friend Ken's got a barn. Right. My friend Ken can draw. Oh, well, do you want to design this set? I went, I have no idea how. <laughs> but I just went okay and I drew it I literally drew a colored rendering not even in scale mm -hmm. just a finished look right. what about this yeah. oh that's good so I had such amazing people I was working with there the the technical directors and the carps and stuff like that. they were all we were all kind of like in it together mm -hmm. um they just uh would walk around the stage with me and I'd say a wall here a door here and then they knew what I wanted the finished thing to look like right. and they built it and I painted it that's great it's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and yet it sounds so familiar. Now, having mm -hmm. talked to so many designers, it seems like a really, like that's how many people came to the theater. Now, uh, who, do you remember the names of the TD or any, any of the crew that you were working with? Uh, well, Danny Costain uh -huh. was the builder. He was also in the show. Mm -hmm. And I think his, his, maybe his niece now, who I see at Stratford in some things. He was a wonderful singer. So that show, Putting on the Rich, which was my first show, um... It, it, the guy who was also starring in it, there was four people in the show, um, built the set. I love to tell people that at the time, I designed the costumes and the set, and I painted it mm -hmm. myself, and I designed the poster, and I took tickets at the door, right. and I got $300 for the entire thing. Right. Not a week. Right, right, right. 
$300, there's your fee. You did the set, the costumes, the poster, and you painted it. <laughs> and he took tickets. But you know what? It wouldn't have changed it for any, anything. Yeah. I did th- th- about, Don ran it for about three years. And I did, he, eventually he just said after the first and second show, do you want to just be my resident designer? And I said, yes, and I quit teaching. I quit just like that. Just like that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and how, uh, I mean, you were still relatively young. No, I was like, uh, I was 27. Right. Yeah. So taking risks like that were kind of obvious you know and what, easy, right? It, the, the hard thing was, it wasn't hard, but I went from what was a, a, a teacher's salary, mm-hmm. which amazingly, when I started was $8,500 a year. And when I quit was 18,000 I think even so in today's standards like that's insane but that compared to my friends was like really good because they were earning what $150 a week doing theater maybe so I went to that and you know I so it but it was you know what you're just as happy without money you really are I was just as happy and what about the uh the atmosphere around the belfry I mean this is uh, something I'm really interested in is about how like how uh, the sort of history of how theater, professional theater, started in Canada as well, uh, and the Belfry is now like it's an established. It is a yeah, you know, recognized. It's an important theater in Canada. Uh, like, how, how about the atmosphere around the Belfry when you first started there? What was it like? Like, where were you well, guys in the same? You guys were not in the same venue. You were, mm-hmm. they are now, or was yeah. it the same? Place? Well, yeah, it's that old church. That's yeah. why it's called the Belfry. Right. The office was up. St- well, the office, the Belfry itself, where the uh, Bell was and stuff like that is now the office and very nice. It's been renovated so beautifully. But when we were there, um, backstage was the office. So they cleared out the office for you so you could put your makeup in and stuff in the evening. Oh, right. And across the hall from that where now the scene shop is was um, a, a men's shelter home. Right. So they would often wander onto the stage right. <laughs> in the middle of a rehearsal. <laughs> <laughs> and there was a dentist's office in another part of the Belfry. Like, and if we used too much power, it would go, the drill would come, would stop. The dentist would come in and say, you're using too much power. I can't, you know, work on my patient. <laughs> oh my God, the trials of theater, eh? Uh, what about lighting and other sound and other designers that were there? Do you remember who you were working with at the time or was it sort of... Uh... Carl Hare, I think he was a prof at UVic. I know he did a show called Da that I did. Um, oh, gee. I have to. I leave it. Put my thinking cap on for that one. That's okay. That stuff. That kind of memory is a bit of. I mean, it was forty years ago. Yeah, I know. So I understand. <laughs> I think who? Yeah. Uh, well, that's great. And so you became the resident designer. Tell me about putting on the Brits. Was it uh, original show or was it uh, bought or was it like where did it come from? Putting on the Brits was Don Shipley's idea, and he put together these um, Irving Berlin. It's all Irving Berlin music, and. Uh, he um, compiled it. There was no real script to it, but he compiled the order of them and the way they worked together and the way that the sort of uh, feeling of it. And uh, it was very, very successful. And then we took it to the Shaw Festival right. as well in 1980, the first show I ever did at Shaw. Right. Uh, and how was... Okay, Okay. so there's so many questions there. So this is your first show you ever designed. You didn't do any kind of theater training. You were obviously a fine artist. Uh what was it like to go to the Shaw Festival, which is one of the two giant rep theaters in Canada? Like, how was that experience? That was really frightening. I also did sets and costumes, and I don't do costumes that often. I do costumes now for shows that my partner, Morris Banich, writes. If it's maybe modern day, I will likely do them in a small cast. If it's a period piece, not likely. But this time, this takes place in like, oh, the 20s. Mm-hmm. And... um 
I had never worked with master Italian tailors and the people I have at Shaw. And, the, and, you know, I didn't have to paint it myself. That was unbelievable. But I remember that the show got behind because other shows took precedent over it. And about I was painting a part of the set at 2 in the morning one time by myself. And Cam Porteous, who was the head of design, came in, Cameron Porteous, got quite angry at me and said, you better make sure that works because that cost us $10,000 for that lighting effect. And I was painting these strips of plexiglass pink so that hopefully when the light came behind it, it would look pink. Of course, it didn't. It just looked awful because it was just solid paint. Right. And I did ruin the effect. Um, but I remember actually sort of bursting into tears because I thought, sure. this is not fair. It's my first show. I'm here by myself yeah. at two in the morning. That would never be allowed now. But at that time, nobody cared, you know. I had to finish the set. Uh, and yet a story that's probably familiar to many people <laughs> working in many exactly. other theaters at that exactly. time period. And still to this day. I mean, we try to limit that, but that's still something that happens so often, right? Uh, well, that's incredible. And you went on tour as well, did it? Like, was it outside of No, Shaw? it just... Uh, putting on the bits, no. It just no. did Shaw and Belfry. Right. Excellent. Uh, other shows you did at the Belfry? Can you remember stuff oh, that you God. did at the same time? I have a little list Fantas- here, don't I? <laughs> Fantastic. And that'll be very handy because I, like, literally... Morris printed this out for me today. I went, oh, my God. <laughs> a Day in the Death of Joe Egg. Um, P.F. That, that was a wonderful one-woman show. I can't remember her name. A French-Canadian uh, singer. She was amazing. A Dames at Sea. Okay, my friend Sheila uh, starred in that. Yeah. Um, da with um, Denny Arndt, who I see is up for a Tony right now. Oh I just looked God. and went, oh, my God, I haven't seen him for 40 years. <laughs> uh, Private Lives. Oh, Wow. Canadian Gothic, American Modern. Okay, when I see Canadian Gothic, American Modern, which is one of the very first shows I ever did, I don't even know who wrote it, I'm sorry to say, I know that in the left-hand, in the upper stage right uh, corner, there was a big sun, like a, uh, uh, what do you call it? A a sun box. Right, like a light box. A light box. And I think that's probably my most recurring theme, and it started there. If you look at my shows, you were saying something about Windows earlier, You'll almost always, somehow, if I can, there's a sun up in the right. It just feels right to me. I think it's almost like how a little kid draws a house and stuff. And and right there is that sun. I just finished doing a show, I'm skipping ahead 40 years, um, called A Thousand Splendid Suns at ACT in San Francisco. Huge, huge success. uh, Written by uh, Khaled Husseini, who wrote The Kite Runner. So, I mean, people already come with major expectations. It's a 450-page novel and really, really difficult to design because it takes place over 35 years and in at least 17 locations. So, and it's called A Thousand Splendid Suns. Uh, So I came up with this pattern, this sort of henna pattern that that, uh, Afghan women, Afghanistan women uh, paint on their hands when they get married. Mm -hmm. And it's almost in a sun sort of shape on stage and the stage all opens up and stuff. But that show... And I'm, I'm thrilled it's been picked up by um, the Old Globe in San Diego, a Seattle uh, rep. Um, I'm hoping maybe the, the Grand Theater here, um, Washington, D.C., uh, back to San Francisco. Like it's just getting... And it was so much fun to work on this brand new project that people just loved and to meet Helen Hussein several times in like a... It was a thrill. Anyway, sons are an important theme for me. <laughs> That's good. I'll keep my eye out when I look at this. Yeah. Uh, great. So that you... Um, uh, you're at the Belfry. When did you start? When was your first show that you got hired outside of the Belfry? When, when did other people start recognizing your work and hmm. saying, "Yeah, we should get uh, Ken McDonald to do that show"? Well, let's see. I'd have to, you know, I refer back to our notes here. Oops. 
Oh. Well, the new the new play center, I don't even know if it still exists in Vancouver. That's a horrible thing for me to say, but I don't know. Uh, and Pam Hawthorne, Pamela Hawthorne used to run this. And Morris was just a new playwright at that time, too. And so we did some shows. I can see The Story of a Sinking Man, which was a beautiful play that Morris wrote. Bloody Business, The Idler. I did about five or six shows there, and that would be my my start, sort of that and Tamanus Theatre at the same time, right. where we did we did a cool show called Haunted House Hamlet, which is basically like Tamara. I mean, in that you moved. I wrapped the entire house in, in torn white canvas uh, and all the objects, and you could tr- follow any actor. You could follow a feel. You could follow... Uh, Rosencrantz, whoever, until they died, yeah. uh, anywhere, and then you would get a totally different show than anybody else. Oh, and we took that to Montreal to the Festival des Amériques mm-hmm. and did it at the National Theatre there. And that was very cool. So we had huge stairways and rooms for people to explore. Yeah. So uh, when I see these things now of, um, oh, what's the one they've just done with the look, Sleep No More? In, right. It's that, like that kind of thing yeah. many, many, many years ago. That's terrific. Who wrote it? Was that a... a Haunted House a, Hamlet was written by Peter Elliott Weiss, mm-hmm. and Morris played Hamlet. Right. Um, Peter Elliott Weiss is now, um, oh God, he's a theater prof uh, in, in Toronto here somewhere, I think. I haven't yeah. seen him for many years. That's fantastic. And when did you, let me escape a bit ahead, when did you and Morris first meet? We met at the Belfry Theater right. in, I think in 1978, in a show called Spoke Song, and I was the set and costume designer. And then he did one more show. I can't think of what it was. Um, but we both had different partners and we were, you know, uh, and then we sort of met again in the early 80s and fell in love and we've been together for 36, 37 years. Now. That's great. <laughs> oh, I think it's now, we could probably start talking about uh, The Last Call too. So uh, this is the first show that you and Morris did to, 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 like... Look, I have together. hair. I have hair in this picture. <laughs> yes, if you go to... This is uh, morrisandken.com, is that right? Um, Kenandmorris.com. Kenandmorris, oh, sorry. Kenandmorris.com. One word, Kenandmorris. Kenandmorris.com. If you go there, you'll be able to see the picture from The Last Call where uh, Ken and Morris are actually starring in The Last Call. So tell me the story about how that began and how you guys figured out... Because you were the musical director on that show as well, a, right? I was the composer and the musical director. Right. Um, yeah, more, I, was, I think I was just telling you a bit ago that I came home one day i don't mean out somewhere more so we're going to write a musical I'm like, well i don't know i don't know how to write a musical i've never written any music right. well we're going to do it and um i've written the first set of lyrics right. <laughs> it's about two guys he had a dream he literally had, had a dream that the two of us were on a beach and were stranded and i was blinded and there'd been a nuclear bomb at the time this is 1981 probably when we were writing it 8081 um it, there was still a sort of a, a real scare of, of nuclear, a nuclear threat. And it was a dream he'd had, and it just inspired him to write this play. So it's a play, a, a musical about me, a man who's been blinded by the bomb, and him, an escaped convict, because the bomb uh, burned down the jail and he got out. We are the only two people, two people left on earth. We don't, uh, I don't know that because I'm blind. He doesn't know that because he's crazy. So he thinks we're going to put on a cabaret. So at gunpoint to my head... We put on a cabaret for no one. So it's, there's a grand piano with a rose in a destroyed set. That's what the set usually looks like. Um, so he came home and put this music on the on the piano. And he went out shopping or something like that. And he came back an hour or two later and I had written a song. And I went, oh, I can do this. <laughs> it's so bizarre. Like, so then he just kept doing that. And we worked on it for months. And, uh, and our landlady downstairs happened to be the general manager of Tamanus Theatre. 
And Tamanus Theatre was a very influential and kind of crazy, uh, hippie kind of theatre company at the time. And were very open to hearing our songs. They heard them, they loved them, they said, finish it and we'll do it. And they did, and our friend Sue Astley uh, directed it. And it was a huge, huge hit. Opening night was so scary. It was at the Vancouver East Cultural Centre. We arrived, and the people were lined up around the block. And we got to our dressing room. It was filled with flowers. And I was so scared. I mean, so scared. I had hardly ever, except for in university, in small roles performed. And this was big. This is just me and Morris. And then at the very end, there's this song I wrote called Last Call. It was a very catchy song. And one guy in the audience leaped up basically on a table and been do it again and the whole audience sang it and it was like oh my god the response was incredible and so it got rave reviews and we traveled across the country with it and we did a cbc special of it yeah. and interestingly you say you lit it yes wow yeah, yeah i did it at the globe theater in 2003 maybe or four and who did the set do you know oh, oh put man, you on the spot you see? I, i've not forgotten uh the set designer and costume designer for the last call of the globe uh, was Dieter Schurig. I didn't want to didn't want to disrespect Dieter. Uh, now just uh, back to the interview. Bye. Is the globe in the round? It is in the yeah, round. Okay. Yeah, yeah. We uh, it was a giant. Basically, it was a crater. It was a sort of a. Uh, I think it had a, a, some sort of lip that we had lit underneath as well, so you could right. sort of see the rim of the crater. Uh, and Alan Moon and Patrick McManus were in it. Right. Uh, and Alan Moon played the piano. I was thinking we had a Synclavier system, yeah. so he had he could fake it. He could fill into the uh, he could write the bits that were very difficult to act and sing and play at the same time, so it would come back. Uh, and it would the obviously the piano the Yamaha Just would play play playing. for him. Yeah, and he would sort of play over top of it, so he didn't have to think about what he was playing, but it would. Be as expressive. It's so bizarre because I did a, a musical directed it once with Chris Thomas, a uh, wonderful fellow who I don't think he acts anymore. He raises horses. He's married to Lucy Peacock in, right. in, in Stratford. And he and, um, oh, I have to think. Who, oh, oh D- David Sarita, mm-hmm. an amazing singer, pianist in Toronto. You can still see playing in clubs and I love him. And um, I remember having to, so I only had written out the score for myself right. i mean i wrote a melody line yeah. and a chord chart right, right, like right. you could play the guitar to it basically but sure. that's how when i write music which i haven't done for a million years yeah. is that's what i do. I write the melody line just so that i remember that's yeah. what this is what key we're and then i just make it up yeah. so we actually hired someone to uh listen to the tape of it and write down the entire piano right which was an amazing amount of work for them. Hand write it yeah. down. Like now you would just play it and it would be yes, that's right. printed out. <laughs> but you had to, he had to, he, so he hand wrote it in hundreds of pages on this huge manuscript paper. And then people would try to learn it from that. And, you know, it was just, however, I played the piano. I wasn't thinking in terms of chord structure and stuff. Yeah, that's crazy. Uh, that's exactly how I, I play the piano as well. And Do that's you? how I remember, I don't uh, read music very well, but I, um, Guitar tabs yeah. is how I play me too. anything. That's the easiest anything. way. Yeah. You can put any song in front of me, especially if I know it. It's very handy. But if you've got the chord chart there, I'm fine. I can fill in. I know all the arpeggios. I know everything else. Exactly. Exactly. But I can't just sit down and read a classic or, or read a, a Broadway score sheet or something. Yeah, I mean, no, no. no. the same way. Yeah, it would frighten the hell out of me. <laughs> you too. Um, well, that's so did you have any musical training before you did that? Or was it mm, just, you know. I totally picked it up. I have like grade six Royal Conservatory, you know, yeah. for Elise, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then I wanted to play what, it sounds so old-fashioned to say, pop piano was sure. what my parents called it. Yeah. And what, 
I wanted to be kind of like to play Elton John yeah. songs and things, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I realized I could play by ear, and I still can. If I hear a song, I can basically play it. Um, so I told my parents when I was in just going to start grade seven, uh, I don't want to take piano lessons anymore. You know, it's not like I was a sporty guy, but I couldn't do a lot of things with my friends because I had to practice the piano or go to my piano lessons and stuff. And I didn't want to play sonatinas and I just you know oh I hated it yeah. and allegros and boleros all this um and so once I quit I, I, I by no means quit playing the piano in fact I played a lot more yeah. and my parents actually really encouraged it yeah. many a uh, dinner I got out of playing the dishes if I would play the piano and sing right. so so I did <laughs> fantastic so after that first of all tell me about the um the TV adaptation of Last Call, like obviously it was a very successful production, so they wanted to put it on. How did that come about? Do you remember how well, CBC picked it up? Like, where did the budget come from, and what was it? What context? What it, was it produced in? Was it? Fellow's name was Don Williams, and he sorry, was um, a TV director slash producer for CBC. I guess he must have seen it in Vancouver, but he came to Thunder Bay when we were playing. Yeah. And I'll, I'll go back for a second. Thunder Bay, sorry. We played in the Ukrainian Labor Temple right, right, right. where <laughs> our um, dressing room was the sort of coat rack room. Right. And in intermission, when we were on stage, the Ukrainian ladies made pierogies right. in that room. So they moved our costumes right. and then the place, it was covered in flour until we came back down again. And there was no, we had no washroom. Right. So we had to, in full costume, in which like I've got bandages and blood on and Morris is like crazy. We had to either wait till all the patrons had used the one bathroom <laughs> so that we could use it. Otherwise, like how embarrassing, how awful you just want to just leave me alone for a minute at intermission. <laughs> and no, uh, and, and, and there was also, you were allowed to bring your dog into the theater okay. there. And so there were often sort of little dogs yapping. And there was um, always the sound of clinking glasses because during the show after intermission, the people who had a glass of not probably about wine, a, a pop or something. The guy cleaned it up during the whole thing. So you heard constant cleaning up of dishes and cutlery and glasses clinking. Um, so oh, I can't remember the question. No, it's okay. <laughs> oh, yes, I do. <laughs> so, yeah, well, I was going to say that I worked at Stage West, so oh. I understand the, the clearing up oh. of the dishes in the middle oh. of the dinner theater. But, um, but yeah, so uh, how did you get to CBC okay. television? So this fellow, Don Williams, who eventually directed the CBC production, came out to... Thunder Bay and talked to us about it. Would we like to do this? I mean, well, yeah, it'd be kind of fun. It was a big budget and it was built in the, uh, I remember, I think, remember Renee Samard. Do you remember? Renee? It was in, uh, he had his TV show. It was in that space. It was a big studio in Vancouver and they built quite a huge, amazing set. We updated a bit. It took place uh, in a television studio that had been burned down and it had been uh, nuked. And so there was just a grand piano uh, in this old television stage. So we had cameras around. So we were filming filming ourselves so we could push the camera on and do oh, funny shots because like, right, right. Morris basically his character was controlling yeah. there's nobody alive there are no cameramen because yeah. we're the only two people left on earth yeah. so it was really fun I have don't have a copy of it I've tried um, actually Richard Zunian tried to help me he was doing something for CBC archives and I said if you can get a hold of this mm -hmm. he said and I think it's probably on a huge thick kind of old television reel because we're talking probably 83 maybe 84 yeah. 
So if anybody knows how to get a hold of it. <laughs> I know, that'd be great, wouldn't it? I'd love to Well, it'd probably that. embarrass me to death, but I'd love to see oh, it. Oh, yeah, of course. We wouldn't broadcast <laughs> it. We would just well, watch yeah, exactly. it in private. Uh, excellent. So uh, Breakout Hit, like that's incredible. And did that sort of let, get you known by the rest of the country? Yeah, I think it did, kind yeah. of, you know. Um, it's amazing. We performed in Toronto at, it was called Adelaide Court. Yes, it's yeah. now Toronis, right? Um and I think we were the last people ever. We probably closed the theater down. We only got about thirty-five people a night, yeah. and it was in, the, in this very strange space. Um, but I've met so many people over the years who said, "I saw it. I saw it. I saw you guys do that show," and it kind of got us noticed. And, and it it led us into writing uh, three other musicals, mm-hmm. um, and so we did, and that was all with uh, Tamanus Theater again. Mm-hmm. One called Cheap Sentiment, and one called. Oh, I can't remember. <laughs> that's, okay. that's okay. That's enough. That's enough. Uh, great. And and you continue to design. So did you did you uh, do any kind of uh, MD or musical or acting outside without Morris? Or did you? was that only stuff that you guys collaborated on? Only stuff that we collaborated on. Right. Then Morris, uh, we put together this show, which we went to Russia with, called Simple Folk. And basically, we were a Peter, Paul, and Mary kind of group. It was right. the stories, our true stories of growing up in the 60s. Right. And um, Babs Chula, who was just, uh, she, and she died, and I adored her. She was a, such a dear friend, and she had this amazing voice. And she wore this long, straight rig, Alec Mary Travers. Mm-hmm. Morris and I grew little mustaches and beards. I played the guitar, and a fellow named, I want to say John Forrest, um, played the bass. Mm-hmm. And it was a big hit. We played in Vancouver for a long time. People kind of thought of us as a real folk group. We were actually hired by a very wealthy, I can't think of their names, a very wealthy sort of uh, forest baron to play at his Christmas party. And we, we, they said to us, um, do you want to just play in the corner there? That's where the group played last year. We said, oh, who was that? Oh, the Kingston Trio. <laughs> <laughs> and we, went, we knew that they were leaving that night to go to Paris. Mm-hmm. They were very wealthy. So Morris said to the wife of this fellow who was hosting this party um well what time is your plane and she looked at us like we were crazy but when we get there because of course it was a private plane like imagine why would you ask what time is our plane so that was so strange so we we did that for quite a while and we went to russia with it it was a a vancouver exchange between odessa which was vancouver's sister city and here and we, we performed at three different venues in in russia we would sing and speak in English, and then when we did, said our little stories in English, we would pause, and they'd be told in Russian, and then in Ukrainian. And it was people were constantly coming up to us in intermission, literally trying to escape the country, saying, "Get me out of here! Get me out! Take you know what? Um, what could you do? It was the weirdest. I mean, this is 1988 or something like that. Right, you know, right, right. it was a strange, strange. Everything was underground. Un- everything was. That was very, yeah, that was everything was in flux. That was just that was perestroika. Yes, and that was tear down this wall and all yes. that other stuff, right? Just before it all kind of Before it all came. We did go yeah. to Berlin before the wall came down. Yeah. And then right after. The amazing thing was we had been working with this fellow named Wolfgang Kohlnader, who was a fascinating fellow from Berlin. And we did a number of uh, shows with him. He directed some of the musicals that we had written at Tamanus. Mm-hmm. And uh, when we went to Berlin to visit him, the first thing they did was drive us to the wall. I mean, that was like you had to see that. Right. And there were, you know, there were guards. We went to East Berlin and and there'd be sticks with long mirrors on them looking underneath the crane. Your your passport was taken away. Yeah. 
It was very frightening time. Yeah. You know? so, and so Russia was very strange. I might have had a phone call in my room that said, Mr. Mr. Johnson, I can see you. I think, what? <laughs> and, and my mom and my sister came along too because they thought, oh, my son is going to Russia to play. Uh, and all their underwear was stolen. All the women's underwear was stolen from all the... Because they, they're key ladies. Key ladies sit at the end of each hallway and you give your key to them. <laughs> they just go into your room and take whatever they want. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Strange story. Oh, yeah. That's very odd. Uh, what about other work you were doing in the early 80s? Um, uh, you were starting to work outside of Vancouver? Uh, in the early 80s, I'm looking at this list here. Sure. Um, no, the, like I did a lot of stuff for, oh, I can see it. So Studio 58, Green Thumb, Tamanis Theatre, New Play Center. So Studio 58 is uh, Langara. It's an amazing... Uh, acting school in yeah. Vancouver, and a lot of great people have gone to that. And 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 uh, Catherine Shaw, who's the artistic director of it, and Pam Johnson, who's the um, resident designer. So there's just amazing people. Bruce Kennedy. They've been there forever, and uh, they used to laugh because uh, Bruce Kennedy, who built the sets, would say, "Well, Ken just drew it on a napkin," and I literally would <laughs> draw it on a napkin. Um, <laughs> here's my concept <laughs> until you know I finally learned to draft. Um, but I did a lot of a lot of shows for them. And, and that's how we got into this whole, we'll skip ahead to the overcoat, but sure. we did three uh, movement pieces there, non-verbal movement pieces there. And they were seen by Glynis Lation, who went, do you want to do a big piece for us? Yeah. But I want to go back to one second when I say that I drew on a napkin, because I did. Um, I have no training in drafting. Right. And so by the time I got to about my fourth or fifth show, maybe at the Belfry, I thought, I, I have to... This is just not how, how it's really done. Right. And at the time, it was literally bl- blueprints. I sound like I'm 100 years old, but they were blueprints. <laughs> and uh, so, okay, good. So I have to learn how to make a blueprint. And I sort of hired this tutor kind of person. And I remember, I know when they left, I, again, I seem to always be, I burst into tears, but I, I can't do this. I don't know what they're talking about. So I started to figure it out. I never used to make a model. And then once I, realize now how important that is because it's the 3D-ness of it. I sort of start off by full... Should I get into that, how I do this? Okay. I have my... I either make myself a little white, always white, model box. Sometimes in eighth inch, you can see up there on the shelf. Sometimes in quarter inch, sometimes in half inch. Eighth inch, I don't do as much anymore because it's really literally fits in the palm of your hand. But it's so easily disposable. That's what I like. This idea, no, this, this. So let's say in quarter inches, not too, if it's not too large a theater, quarter inch is pretty manageable. Yeah. And I get a gooseneck lamp and I choose a source of light. And with white paper, I start folding, creasing, cutting, rolling, doing all kinds of things. I'm, anyway, I have an idea of what I'm thinking about, like what period in that. And I, like, I start to see how the shadows fall and how, how it looks. And then eventually I make myself usually a quarter inch model in scale of all the walls and stuff and I make little people. And then I might draw it in half-inch scale, in pencil. I don't CAD. And um, I have on, I have had several wonderful assistants, but right now my assistant is Ken McKenzie, and he's got his master's in design from, from L.A., and he's like a fantastic guy and a great, great drafter and model builder. And I hand it over to him, and I'd really trust him. And then he hands it back to me, and I will paint it, the, the, the renderings and stuff like that. And um, so that's great. I, Yes, I could learn 
CAD, mm -hmm. but I kind of love the pencil drawing look. And I'll still do a lot of prop drawings like that. I can draw quite well. And so I can draw in perspective in pencil. I can draw a 3D table or counter, anything that needs to be built. It's certainly all the props people need. I've got the dimensions on it. It's not CAD. And I, I find the look of CAD very hard and very cold. It has no emotion to it. Yeah. No sense of this is old, this is broken, this is, you know, where, where a weighted pencil line can give you all that. Yeah. And I just, I can't think in CAD. I think, you know, you're thinking, I can tell, a, when I look at a building, like say up at Laird in Eglinton, where I used to go to the gym there, there's, um, <clears throat> there's a big shopping mall with winners and stuff. Well, it just looks like it's been done by a 10-year-old on a CAD. It's so geometric, so, um, so symmetrical. Yeah. So plain, there's nothing to it. And you know what's being done on a computer as fast as it can be done. And I think I would encourage uh, students to learn to draw, to be able to communicate not just with your computer. I draw almost everything now on my iPad with my finger. I'll show you some drawings. And it's my home, and I love it. I love drawing on the iPad. But I can still draw with a pencil and a pen and ink. Sure, so that. And I had an argument with, argument with a fellow recently saying, well, you just don't need to do that now. You do not need to know how to draw. And I, I really thought about it. I thought, well, I guess it's true. I guess I could just reference everything from a photograph that I could cat it, I could this. But it feels to me like, like you think of Picasso's abstracts. Well, his first drawings when he was 19, 20 were beautifully uh, realistic. Mm -hmm. You, I think you have to know how to abstract from... I think you have to know how to draw before you can abstract stuff. Same with you don't write modern music, atonal stuff, if you don't actually know what you're abstracting. Yes. So to me, I think that drawing is an important skill and tool. At life drawing, so you can draw, a, you know, when you do your costume sketches, there's a couple there of mine. Um, I want them to convey something, not just have a, oh, I can't draw hands very well and I can't draw a face very well, so it's a little blank and it's a little, you know, and you kind of go, mm, okay, you can sew, but it, it's... Learn to draw. Yes. <laughs> That's interesting. I know that my experience uh, at theater school was learning to hand draft first, and then I catted. And what was, I mean, I embraced CAD because it's so useful oh, as a lighting designer. Of course, you're basically you're. I mean, lighting design, lighting design, directing is basically tracing, right? So it saves a lot of time. You just trace those little things. Of, oh, I know. Yeah, yeah. But but that being said, I was always focused on reproducing what I learned to do by hand rather than doing whatever the drawing program wanted me to do. Right. Right. And I think that was probably an important, uh, important lesson. Yes. Now I'm not sure if hand drafting is taught first. I think they just go straight to CAD. Uh, but not if you're doing, obviously if you're doing life drawing or if you're doing, you know, yep. renderings, that's different. But um, to do technical drawings, it's all done right in the computer. I totally right? understand yeah. because it has to be made into CAD eventually now yeah. because that's what everybody does. Um, but although you look at some people like Eugene Lee, mm -hmm. he's now in his mid seventies or late seventies. I saw his drafting for Oklahoma. I was doing a show at Washington stage in arena and, and Oklahoma was on at the time. I just loved his drafting. There it was on vellum paper in pencil with some photographs sort of embedded into it stuff. And it was so beautiful, so old school, but so beautiful. Uh, I think people have the same visceral reaction to Michael Egan's drawings, whom I'm going to speak with in a week. I go back to Montreal and next Sunday, hopefully, to speak with him. And they have the same. His me drew in pen. He was so like pen. That's just, that takes <laughs> that takes such a like. Well, I don't know. It takes a real it does. kind of confidence in your skill to be able to go. 
here's my first, <laughs> you know, in pen. No, no, no one's erasing that. When I think of amazing drawings, though, I think of Michael Levine's drawings. Yeah, yeah. Michael Levine's costume drawings are so beautiful, and his renderings, and it, I, I just think he's a genius. Christina Petubiak's drawings yeah, and her husband Scott McCowan. Yeah. We often go, oh, she makes me sick. They're so beautiful. I just go, oh, Christina, they're so beautiful. It looks like the person. There's a shine on the shoe. Yes. Every shoelace. Oh my God. And you know, I, I can draw quite well, but then I go, oh no, I can't. <laughs> That's interesting. I was um I just want to go back a second uh before we go on with other shows. And and you talked about how you start when you start with the model, you start with little shapes. And how they all fit. And then with the gooseneck. I, one thing I noticed in looking over um, some production photos, especially of, it was sort of most pronounced in Amadeus. Uh, I'm not sure where it was, where you produced it, but it was very, very geometrical. Yeah. It was like a can, build, sta- a can stage. It was a building up of shapes. Uh, and then it looks like I could see the kind of repetition of that kind of, uh, and always different ways, but the, like you can see your process in your final design mm-hmm. as well. Um, in in the three dimensionality of it as well, so I thought that makes a lot of sense. Uh, like it, it now, it makes a lot of sense to me how you get there uh, if you're starting with the three dimensional rather than just starting with a rendering. Uh, I find starting hand, with right? the rendering. I mean, I do. I'm designing a show called Picture This right now for Soul Pepper, and we start rehearsals in August, and my drawings are due to Monday. <laughs> um, and um, I did do a little drawing on the back of us. Once I were playing Scrabble. And I always keep score. And on the back of the Scrabble sheet was a blank page. And I, I drew the set and went, oh, I, I kind of like that. <laughs> and uh, we had done a show called Parfumery there, uh, which was quite a success and kept coming back every second year. And this takes place in a hotel lobby, just as that took place in a perfumery at the same period in Hungary in the 19, uh, 1910, 1920s. This one's in the 1920s. And I love Art Nouveau. And I wanted to do a riff on my own play. That was a pink Art Nouveau set. So I'm doing a turquoise blue Art Nouveau set in a similar kind of way because it's in the same space. It's the same period. And just um, sort of for fun. And you do tend to go back to some of your old stuff. I'm not finished with certain ideas. Mm -hmm. I'm not finished with twisting white paper around a pencil. And I just did Barber of Seville. We were in Quebec City two weeks ago. And that set was inspired by both Gaudi and Frank Geary kind of and I literally cut I would cut an interesting shape with a hole in it twist it around a pencil and go mm, cut another one and I cut hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of shapes until they became something that represented to me a look uh, in this case of a courtyard in Seville all white buildings but all twisted very difficult to build and I've done you never can tell at Shaw Festival like that and some other show I was going to say that's what that's what reminded me immediately of the uh, the you never can tell set, which has this giant kind of nautilus, really. Yeah, in the middle. Yeah, that's yeah, right. and so does the Barber of Seville, mm-hmm. um, because I love that, and I don't see it on stage very often. And I did see a twisted nautilusy thing once, maybe in London for some Moliere play, and I kind of went, "Oh, I've never seen that," and I sort of stole that twisting and went, "Okay, I'm going to take this a bit further and see what I can do," mm-hmm. and it's really hard for the technical people to build, but they kind of love it. When it's done, they're very proud of it because it's it's just skin ply being bent and bent and bent into almost impossible shapes that you can easily do wrapping the pencil in a paper, but then all of a sudden it's 20 feet high and you have to stand in it, you know. Yes, exactly. (laughs) 
Well, that's fantastic. So let's talk about uh, some other big works uh, coming out of the 80s. Um, anything you want that comes to mind that you, you remember from that from time period? Or should we move into the 90s? Yeah. I'm, I'm looking here. Yeah. I did a lot of shows that they wouldn't be big for for Green Thumb. Green Thumb Theater is a, a children's theater, but much more. You know, it's very the, a lot of new works. It's not like children's theater where you think that it's very. Morris wrote a play about AIDS called uh, The Cost of Living, which traveled everywhere and was very, uh, very influential, and very moving to high school students. You know, what year would that have been? Oh wow, or ninety maybe, maybe early nineties. Yeah, that's pretty daring. Yeah, the early '90s, right? It was still a bit of a yeah, it was and controversial time. Um, I just sort of th- I see. I'm just looking here. Mm, did some summer festival things at White Rock, uh, things like that. But you know, no, ask me something else. Okay, sure, no problem. <laughs> well, let's get into uh, the overcoat then. Sure, I think that's an interesting. Well, um, which came first, vigil, vigil, or overcoat? I think vigil Ooh. came first, right? Vigil, I would. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. Wow. Because Glynis Lation did the first production of Vigil. She produced it at the Belfry Theatre with Alan Williams, wonderful actor from England. Um, But I don't know whether we had done the overcoat on. Isn't that too. I think the overcoat might be around 91. Yeah. I'd have to look that up. Anyway, okay, so Vigil is uh, Morris's. Probably most famous play that and Seven Stories. Mm-hmm. When we do auditions, I often sit in on Morris's auditions. Um, somebody will, some young person will always come up to him and say, "Oh, I in high school I played Mrs. So and So, or I played you know in, in Seven Stories," and they're so thrilled to meet him. In fact, we were doing a show recently based on uh, John Mann from Spirit of the West. We wrote the play called The Waiting Room. He'd written an album called The Waiting Room, mm-hmm. and Morris wrote a play around it, and it was beautiful. And uh, this young girl in it, when she learned that Morris was the director, she came up and said, oh, my God, I thought you were dead. <laughs> so I, I did your show in high school. I've never actually met a, a playwright that's alive. Oh Shakespeare God. and Panitch. But, right, yeah. um, uh, so uh, Vigil, yeah, Morris had worked on it at Banff, um, and Alan Williams was a, a reader at Banff at that time. Like Morris used to go and be a reader. They ha- it was a great thing, and Urgil Kareda was there, uh, and Urgil ran the... Um, Tarragon Theatre for 20 years. So explain to me that program again. So that you Okay, see that. well, in, in Banff, um, the, the writers, I don't know what was called, the writers something, you would, they would take like Joan McLeod and, and Morris and uh, Brad Fraser and tons of playwrights would go there. And then there would be certain actors, one of them named Brian Torpe and people, who um, were hired simply to do the readings. Oh, so nice. these they would work every day. Yeah. And then the next morning, there'd be a reading of what they'd written until maybe over two or three weeks, they had actually finished their play. Right. And they get a final reading. Well, Alan Williams was reading uh, Vigil, and he was just such a genius yeah, in it that Morris went, well, you, you have to do it. Right. And this wonderful old woman uh, named Margaret Barton played the part. And I've done the show maybe seven times. And for just a quick synopsis for those who have not seen or read it, okay. uh, I mean, I can't imagine there oh. are people, but you never know. Young people haven't seen sure. the show. So just give us a quick synopsis of what the play's about. Okay, so the play is uh, um, a man gets a, a, a letter from his aunt saying, I'm dying, you have to come and take care of me. So he travels all the way across the country on a tree, and it all takes place in one room. Um, and he arrives, and she, she's like, he, he walks in the door, and she just throws a brush at him, and he sits down, and he sits, and he sits, and he waits. And 
a year goes by. Now, she doesn't talk. She has seven lines in the entire show. He never stops talking. He's a, he's a neurotic, conceited, scared little man. It's an amazing role. And um, then eventually, uh, well, she dies. <laughs> but not before he's basically fallen in love with her. We find out, hap- just in intermission, because um, he tries to kill her. I, I get to invent this, we always call it the death machine. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's a frozen turkey or a frying pan. Whatever he, she, button that she can press, he says, no worries, no pressure. Press this button for an immense blow to the head right. and this one for an electric shock. Right. And so he's got this killing machine, but it backfires when he tries to demonstrate it and it hits him and it shocks him. And she says the first words, Merry Christmas. Um, he finds out that he went to the wrong address and his aunt, who he's been who he's been looking at across the street, who's actually rigor mortis, sitting in her window dead, is not the aunt that he's been taking care of. She didn't want to say anything because she was glad of the company. Uh, and then it, it it ends that she dies, and just as he's packing her up to take her to the Mediterranean, it's an absolutely beautiful, hilarious play, and you're in tears by the end. It's yeah. a, one of my and I've we've seen it more, and I've gone to see it in Paris, in London, in Germany, uh, in. All over the world, yeah. in in uh, we in Japan, uh, translated or in original English? It's in twenty nine at least different languages <laughs> oh right now. Uh, we, yeah, we saw it in Paris. They stopped the show at the end and introduced Morris. We just saw it in Japan. They did it at the National Theater in Japan, yeah. in Tokyo two years ago. Oh. That was an amazing experience. It was a very strange production. Yes. I mean, like it was so slow, right. and the set was like oh, just a tree branch, and I, God knows what. I don't know what they were thinking. <laughs> How does that, I mean, how does that feel to sort of see your work reimagined in a different context? Like, I mean, it's a different cultural context and not just uh, in the same thing, but how does that That's a really, a really different cultural context. But in Paris, it was um, just these four sort of huge sheets of silk that had a different flower on it, summer, spring, winter, and fall, and a simple little room. It wasn't bad in England. And I hate to say it, and it was very, very famous designer who did it. Uh, I just hated it. It was um, it was an empty room with a bed. The window was in the wrong place because some of the action that needs to place out of it takes place through that couldn't happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, the actor just rather would go. He was a famous TV actor. Just wanted to go to a baseball, uh, not baseball, to a football game instead of rehearsing. Really, mm-hmm. and it just turned out. Terribly. We went to the first preview and then to opening night. And it, it was at the, um, well, I can't think of the theater, an amazing theater where Art had run for five years. The Wyndham's in, in the West End. This was a, Morris's biggest break. Yeah. And we just literally clutched each other and went, oh, my God. We're, it's And it ran for four months. But, you know, it could have run forever with the right people in the right direction. Yeah. He had chosen this. Uh, to me, this play is about this old woman and what was her life before he came. And so I always fill the room with paraphernalia, with things that could have been, like, I don't think, and I've I've designed all these windows and she's papered them up, mm-hmm. like to let nothing, nothing into her world. And this man arrives. Mm-hmm. So when I see it done just in an empty room with none of her past in it, like what's made her live up in that room? How does she, we did it twice with Olympia Dukakis, which was just amazing. Mm-hmm. And she's like, we did it in, at the Mark Day Perform mm-hmm. and at ACT in San Francisco and, and in LA. Mm-hmm. And she's like a force of nature, and she would question everything. Whoa, who who paid for my bills? Who did this? What did my, was I married? All these questions. I and you know I'd done this costume sketch for. Her. I was really scared to. I had met her once, and now 
we are great friends and I love her. I love her. She's like 85 years old. And she's just amazing. But she, very first day of rehearsal, and I'd only met her once, she took my costume sketch and went, no, no, no. And she took an eraser and she erased oh, it. No. And, I want po- and she drew on it. I want pockets here and I want this and this. And we went through all this battle. And eventually I put her into this old brown sweater and this uh, old sort of dirty flannel nightie. And she went, I love that. And that was my original drawing. And, and she, I said, yeah, I know. Okay. So she ended up wearing what I wanted. But she was amazing. And, and all the other people who have always done the show, all the other, oh, Morris did it with Martha Henry himself. And Morris was fantastic. And so was Martha. Uh, Brent, no, sorry. Morris did it with, um, oh, <laughs> my mind, let me come back. Uh, Brent Carver did it with Martha Henry. Yes. Morris did it with Jenny Phipps. Right, yes. And, and they were amazing. And, and Jenny has since had two hip operations. Yeah. But at that time, she could hardly move. Yeah. So I had to rig the bed so she could pull herself into it. Mm-hmm. And she could always, if she had to get up, balance herself on something. Mm-hmm. Um, but she was so receptive to Morris that he would look over and she would be laughing or crying her head off to one of his stories every night. And they just adore each other. And that was wonderful. And then Brent and Martha were wonderful. So I've seen great productions of it, you know. Um, it's it's a beautiful show. It makes me wonder how, whenever we approach a play that's been that's not a new production, um, that's a reimagining or even not connected to the original production at all, uh, we approach it in a vacuum. Really, I mean, uh, many in many cases, I was also taught when I was younger just to scratch out like like. Uh, Stage all the direction. stage directions. Totally. Like, don't read the description oh, of the Oh, especially thing. Shaw. Just don't do it. and <laughs> Just reimagine, right? Uh, and uh, and yet, here is a production that you are very intimate with uh, and is very popular, so it's going to be done everywhere. Uh, and I I wonder who I, like, I have pissed off in the past <laughs> with, my, with my, you know, I'm a, as a lighting designer, it's not, I, I remember having a discussion with Kevin Lamont about, what you should strive for as a designer mm-hmm. and how uh, the, I don't know if we talked about this in the, I, he, I interviewed him the second time we had this show, so uh, the podcast. So it was way, it was before I was even you know, slightly capable, but uh, we had, um, he always said that his, uh, his purpose is to design what he thinks is the perfect representation of the show. Mm-hmm. Um, and everyone's, you know, everyone's taste is different. Everyone's experience is yeah. different. So that obviously is going to be different. Yeah. But uh, it's, I, you know, now I wonder, do I do we owe a debt to the original production? Do we owe a debt to the playwright? I don't think that you do. Mm-hmm. I, I think sometimes, like in the case of Seven Stories, another show that's been done in million languages, and and you know, I've, I've seen bizarre in in Hungary, and and I just ended up doing it um, at ACT. Morris just ended up directing it when I was down there doing this show called A Thousand Splendid Sons. He was working with the master students and the, there was a, a something that came up in it and it ended up being seven stories that they did. And they didn't have a set designer or anything for it. And I so I did it. I did my old set sort of, which is these Magritte clouds. And I I drew it myself and I painted it and I did the costumes all for nothing. But anyway, um, I did it because it was Morris's show and I wanted to. Um, I've seen productions, seven stories is a very surreal kind of plane. It's a, it's a man who, is going to commit suicide from the seventh ledge of a building. And the show starts off, you just, it's a blackout, and then the, the, you see, and he just appears on this ledge. And then people pop open the windows and they're fighting and they have no interest in him, no interest 
in asking, why are you on that ledge or can I help you? They're just all very uh, self-obsessed. Um, and so I had this idea of um, making it look like it was from the man's perspective. So when you look at any of my seven stories set, the perspective is backwards. It gets bigger as it goes up away from you as opposed to smaller. Mm -hmm. Because for the man looking down, that's what he would have seen. Right. And I I, I kind of love Magritte. And he's the father of surrealism. Now, this is a very surreal play. And so I based it among in the clouds. Mm -hmm. It's simply clouds, windows that open in clouds, and the shelf. And the man is dressed like a little Magritte man. Now, he has to fly at the end. Mm -hmm. And I get a lot of people phoning me or writing me and asking me because they're designing this play. How does he fly? What are we going to do? Mm -hmm. And Peter Anderson, who... Uh, starred in the Overcoat and also starred in the original production of Seven Stories, is a genius movement person. All he did was lift his bum up and place it on the window ledge, and then his legs floated, right. put up his um, his Magritte umbrella, a la Mary Poppins, mm -hmm. and with the lighting change, because it all turned to a star field, he simply looked like he was floating in space, and it was the easiest thing in the world. And I set the set at a 15-degree angle, so 15 degrees back, mm -hmm. so that it was safe for him. It also has that weird look to it and so if you stand up straight it looks like you're way more precarious than you really are yeah. um, so I do recommend to the people that I mean I've seen it done in various ways with brick buildings and with somebody wanted to do it with seven animal heads now why would you want it and it just makes no sense I could uh, but I always when I'm doing it like if it's not an original show um, I will look at what other people do. I think, why be naive? You know, like, okay, um, say I just did Barbara of Seville. Well, it's been another bazillion times. Yeah. What do people do? You might go, well, that's a great idea and I can steal that. But basically, I always just want to go, I don't want to do what everybody's done. Mm -hmm. But I might as well know what they've done and what they what's expected from that. Yeah. You know, and I'm terrible at reading plays. I'm terrible. I, I read, I go, oh, I forgot there's a balcony. Oh, my God. I, <laughs> you know. Uh, in opera, there's this kind of tradition of, uh, because new opera, I mean, new opera does exist, but people, the, like the backbone of opera is doing either productions you've done before over and over again, or hiring it, yep. or hiring sets from Houston to totally. do it, right? Uh, and the expectation, uh, my understanding is the expectation is, uh, you know, people get down to the detail of, uh, does she drop the cup at this line or that line? Or when she picks up the dress, does yes, she do yes. this and that? And how, I mean, when you're trying things, something new, how much responsibility do you have or do you feel towards those expectations of the audience, let alone the directors of the performers, right? Well, having just done Barbara Seville, I mean, okay, so the guy who played Figaro was just amazing, and he'd been flown in from Paris to do it. He'd done it 15 times, right? I Googled him, and there he was on YouTube singing in France, you know. Right. I, and everybody had done the role. Um, they all speak Italian much better than Morris does, who was right. directing it. And he would say, you know what it was actually? They would say, no, but I'm saying this right now. He'd go, oh, yeah, 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 right. <laughs> and also, in because this was in Quebec City, and Quebec City is a very French-speaking city. You don't get away with it like in Montreal. You know, when I'm ordering a burger in Quebec City. I'm ordering it in French. And it was sort of fantastic to force myself to speak French. So all the leads spoke uh, French and English and Italian. But the chorus, no, the chorus basically spoke French. And we had amazing stage managers and assistant stage managers who translated for Morris. I mean, they spoke and he, and he would speak as much French as he could and try to learn a bit more each, each day. But um, there are certain bits where we didn't know the first time we were doing it because we did this at Pacific Opera Victoria, first of all, and that's where the set was bought and brought to here. Um, 
there's a bit where uh, apparently the Figaro always like uh, blows um, shaving cream off of the face of such on a certain line. Right. And the first time we do it, they said, well, this is where I do. And Morris, what do you mean? Well, this is where I do this. Go, well, I didn't know. You know, if you're not an opera person, like we're really not. Mm-hmm. Um, it, yes, there are bits that are known. And, you know, there, there's that expression park and bark where yeah. people... I think what they love about working with Morris and what people always do is he's very inclusive and, and takes new ideas and also will direct them as actors. And they don't often get a lot of that. Yeah. It's just about their voice. I have to stand here to get over the orchestra yeah. and there has to be a wall that's bouncing the sound on stuff. Yeah. So they kind of love working with him because he lets them play around. Yeah. And, and I think he gets a much better performance. But yes, there are expected things. Hi there, I'm interrupting briefly to ask you once again to support the title block on Patreon.com. Click on the Patreon button in the show notes, and this will bring you to my Patreon page where you can donate a small amount for every episode. I'm just asking that you help cover the cost and and, and help me to continue to capture the story of Canadian theatre design. Go to Patreon.com slash the title block podcast and donate a couple of bucks an episode. It really helps. Uh, any other kind of big mentors when you were uh, first starting that you remember modeling well, yourself after? Or no, not modeling because I, you know, I, the funny thing about designers is like the only time you meet other designers, say when I'm working at Shaw Festival, is in the design office. And you go, oh my god, this is fantastic! Sula Page is here, and Charlotte Dean is here, and Christina Petubiak, and because otherwise, how would I ever know them? Because you do the show on your own, you you get to know. Maybe the, the other costume designer, the lighting designer, but you don't know other set designers because it's a solitary thing. I sit in my little room here and I draw. And um, then I go to the theater and stuff, like, but I never meet them. So I don't, so no, I don't have a big, infl- I don't know a lot. Of, I mean, I do know other set designers, of course, they're friends, mm-hmm. but only because I've met them at places like big festivals. Yeah. And you didn't apprentice with anybody when you were starting out. You just sort of started designing and that no, was it. Just, you made it up yourself, right? No. People sort of apprentice with me now. They're not learning anything. I don't know how to do anything. <laughs> I'm sure that's not true. Um, what about uh, what about your tastes in uh, art school? Like when you went to university, university, yeah. you now you were you were training as an educator. Yeah, I was training to be an art teacher, and that's what I became—a high school art teacher. What about your media? Like, what did you come out of? Um, did you have any kind of? Uh, 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 sorry, did you have any kind of expectations to be an artist yourself? Uh, and did you? Yes, I think I think that um, I kind of, you know, in high school, say, I thought I would become a commercial artist. I didn't really know what that meant. Yeah. That sounded good. I would draw Pepsi ads or something sure. like that, you know. And as a kid, uh, my dad um, at one time was a, a worked, ran a printing press. Mm-hmm. He was a very, very honest man. And he would ask his boss, could I take home the cutoff sheets of paper that you're throwing away for my son to draw on? And they'd always say yes. And so my dad would bring home trunk loads of beautiful cartridge paper and rolls of paper that were cutoffs. And I always had nice equipment to draw with. And I really think that when you've got a nice pen, a nice piece of paper, it's it's not as disposed. There's something kind of fantastic about that. And so I was really encouraged to draw as a kid. And I think I knew by the time I was in about grade four, when the one time they put up these drawings of South America on the wall or something, I thought, hmm, I seem to draw better than other people in my room. Maybe I'm going to go into this. And I always knew that it was going to be art or music. And even when I was in university, I got sort of lectures saying, you're going to have to choose between art and music. And I really couldn't decide. I kind of, and so for a while, my income tax used to say composer, designer. Um, and now I, I I play the piano for my own entertainment. But um, 
not anybody else's really. Yes. <laughs> there was a quote, I think, from Morris in the Canadian uh, Theater Encyclopedia uh, about this dance between absurdism and realism. And uh, a lot, I mean, you seem very free when you're designing. You're not really sort of stuck into a realistic bent. No. Um, but are how we do, on again? Well, so, oh, we are. Yeah, we are. Oh, okay. Yeah. But how do you... Um, how do you navigate that? Like, do you think about that or do you just not worry about period that much or? Oh, I worry about period. Like I, um, you know, I think, uh, I'll skip backwards. I think that students should be taught. I often propose this idea. Now we're into the 21st century, but there should be a 20th century course. Like, so you, you can say, a director can say to you, you know what, I kind of would like to set this in the 30s and something should come to mind. And I'm going to set this in mid 50s and you should be going, oh, I mean, like kind of Dior like this, or I'm setting this in the late 60s. You go, oh, late 60s, Summer of Love Him. And I don't think a lot of youngish people know that. And there was a book, there are a book called This Fabulous Century. And there's another one that was brilliant where you would open and go 1910 to 1920 and it would show um, the radio. the music. And I think that you should know as a, as a young designer kind of what the political atmosphere was, what the costumes were, what the music was, uh, what the pop culture was, what the films were, and what the period style of furniture was. So you can go, oh, we're in Art Nouveau, we're in Art Deco, we're in mid-century modern, we're in, you know, um, so that something comes to mind. Because Morris and I will go, what year do you want to set this in? And you go, oh, I kind of really like, we kind of like a, a no period, classic period, like Seven Stories, which is basically, we kind of go Jackie Kennedy, late 50s to early 60s. There's a sort of a classic Chanel kind of look that could be now, very hip, could be. And um, so, no, I really do consider, like the picture of this that I'm doing, the Stroll Paper takes place in 1924 in Budapest. So I'm looking at, I'm thinking, okay, you know, because something takes place in 1924, then the building wasn't probably built in 1924. It's an it's a hotel. So let's say it's 30 or 40 years old. So we're going back, you know, to uh, 1890s or something. So we're going, oh, okay, we're kind of in Art Nouveau, and I like that period. And so then then I'll play with that. But in the back of my mind is the period. And, and like uh, Dana Osborne is doing the costumes for this show, and she's saying, Morris is guessing between 22 and 24, and then she sends me photos of what happens to the hemline between this year and this year and what and sometimes someone like charlotte dean or someone doing costumes will say could we move it ahead two years or back because then especially in women's fashions the hems were shorter the hair was different the makeup you go yeah yeah great okay so if there's any room to play um that's kind of something that costume designers will often bring up So it's in the back of your head. Now, the question that sprang to mind is about the difference between an artist and a designer. So as an artist, you're kind of responsible to yourself, <laughs> really yeah. only. Yeah. And as a designer, you're responsible to the whole team, not only the director. Yeah. Uh, now, you, of course, work a lot with Morris, but you don't work exclusively. No, you know, he, I asked Morris, can you find my CV? Because I didn't know where one was. Yeah. And he said, oh, I found this. He printed out. And I counted. And we had done Morris and I together. Uh, I think it's more, I had in the 80s, I think it's more like 100 plays we've, we've done together. Yeah. And, but then I was amazed to see a list of 80 that I had done without him. Yeah. So, oh yeah, wow. Yeah. Like, you know, I just did this show at ACT with Carrie Perloff. Mm -hmm. And I just did uh, with this young fellow named Kevin Bennett, uh, uh, Madness of George III. So I do end up doing maybe a show a year with somebody else. Everything that Morris has ever written or directed, I have designed. Mm -hmm. 
um, for 30 more plus years now. And we kind of love that. I mean, people go, how could you do it? How can you live with your partner? And but you know, as you can see where we are right now, I'm in my studio and then he has a floor above me where he has a little office and he can just go up there, put his earphones on, just write all day. And I don't really see him. You know, it's dinner, it's whatever. Um, or he can say, do you want to come up and read this? I've just I've just written like 10 pages and I'll go up and read it and we'll talk about it. And the great thing is when he's writing a new play, I know I'll design it. And I'm sort of already designing it in my head. I'm going, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And maybe trying to push it. Oh, what about this? And Because that would be a nice thing to design. Yeah, absolutely. So how do you establish your relationship with other directors, though? Like when you come in as a designer, you are, obviously, you have to subject yourself to the script and the play and the ideas of the director and the outcome of rehearsal and things like that. So how do you navigate your own taste? And how do you, because you certainly have your own taste. Like it's. In some design, I remember talking to Sean Kerwin, and uh, we had this discussion about, um, you know, can I, you know, can I show? Do you have any? Do you have a record of your design? Like, do you have a whole portfolio? And she's like, no, I really don't keep that stuff because, you know, it's a, it, it has its own time and space, and every show is really approached quite differently for her. And yet, there are other designers where you see a through line, you see a style uh, that they incorporate into their work. So, how do you navigate? Um, and negotiate your own kind of personal style when you're approaching work, especially with someone whom you haven't worked with before? I think that probably I've been asked in most cases by that person to design the show because they like my designs, right. you know? So they kind of know if I ask me, if they ask me, I hate being the third person, if they ask Ken McDonald, <laughs> you know, to design a set, you're probably not going to get a, a strictly a box set. Right, yeah. You're probably going to get, and they probably want that. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of directors, I think, rely on their designers. They don't, they certainly have their own taste in all these things, but they they don't feel of themselves that they can come up with that. They may say, oh, I'm kind of thinking it's sort of really grungy and it's in 1940 or whatever, but they want you to bring something to them and you do. And, and you know, most often I would bring something and the director would go, oh, I like that. And what about this? And I mean, can I just have a door here because I need, you know, so the stupid and sad thing about designing is you have to deal with where the entrances and exits where are the doors and how is there a post in the middle of that stupid stage and how come i can only go 12 feet there's no backstage wings and there's you know so i was once i was doing a little talk um at soul pepper and, and talking to some students and i just and they were doing quite a free kind of thing about oh i'm going to design this at the top of a 200 foot tree and blah, blah. and i sort of said well I'm okay you know it's You'll never get to do that. You know, I'm sorry to say, but it comes down to what the very first thought is, what space is it in? If it's a tarragon, nothing flies. Mm -hmm. There's no wings. It's 33 feet wide. It's, you know, you just, and this is the reality. You can dream all that, and that's great and outside of the box and all that stuff, but really it comes down to, you know, and so when I work with a different director, like when I just did Our Town with Molly Smith, who I love, she runs Arena Stage in Washington, D.C., and we did My Fair Lady and Our Town at Shaw. And Our Town always calls for a couple of stepladders and a couple of tables, and it's usually wood. And I sort of gave her, and, a, and I put a big, big sun, a nine-foot sun in it, uh, sun and a moon. And, um, and she liked that, but she said, you know what, I don't think I want it in wood. I thought of different shades of wood, and uh, I, think I, I think I'd like it much more stark. And so I said, okay, uh, what about if it's all white? And we went all white, and very, very harsh white, and a white floor, and with a quarter-inch space between each nine-inch board, and each one had an LED strip. 
um, which could go to any color. And Kim Bertel, who's a genius lighting designer, she lit it and it would go all purple, then all pink, and she could control it. And it was this modern take. So in that case, Molly brought something to me that I hadn't brought. I had this sort of more traditional idea of what I was going to do for our town. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think usually desi- directors kind of... Uh, now, at least at this stage of my career, hire me because they kind of know not what they're going to get, but they know what they're not going to get. Right, you know, exactly. terrific. All right, let's talk about the overcoat then. Uh, early nineties, you said about ninety-one, I think previously, something around there. We'll, yeah, we're we'll, guessing. I'll figure it out. I'll, I'll search the internet for okay. the real answer, and people can find it in the show notes. Which yeah, they, which they should go. They should go to. Uh, so uh, this is a movement piece. Script, there's, there's a story. I, it's been a long time since I've seen it. But Did you uh, see it in Toronto? I saw it in Toronto at Kent Stage, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, how did it begin? How did okay. it develop? And how did you find your way into it? So Morris and I had done at Studio 58 Langara in Vancouver, which is the acting college there, three movement pieces, one based on a courtroom drama, one based on a, a box and paper company where there was a fire, and one based on Chopin Nocturnes, called Nocturne, in which we took one Chopin Nocturne and had it uh, recomposed about eight different ways, and each one was a little story. Mm-hmm. And the students were so great at it, and they loved doing it. It was so new, this idea of telling a story without a single word. But it's not dance, because it's actors doing it, but it, but every movement is planned, right down to the lifting of a finger. And Wendy Gorling, who's this amazing movement coach, she worked with Morris on these all these pieces, uh, just to perfect stuff. Morris would basically choreograph it, stage it, the general thing, and 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 some very, very specific stuff. And Wendy might just say, and lift your right shoulder and breathe in here. You know what? It's that detail that just makes the two of them work together so beautifully. Um, so we had done three, and Glenn Islation said to Morris, I, I love these movement pieces. Would you like to do something at the Playhouse? She had just taken over the Vancouver Playhouse. And he said, yeah, she's what we'd like to do. And he literally, because he happened to be listening to Shostakovich at the time and had been reading some Gogol thing, went, oh, I think maybe Gogol and Shostakovich went, fantastic, let's do it. So, okay, now all of a sudden he has said something he has no idea for. And um, the rehearsal for it was amazing. By the time we came in, I had, I knew that I had, you know, these huge windows, factory windows, a back wall, then these huge pens that flew in there, 25 feet tall. And move, and, but... They were making it up on the spot. They sat down, the cast of 22, about 10 of them were from Langara, um, and Morris would play the first 20 bars and say, okay, the story that we need to tell is he's going to arrive at his office and they're going to make fun of him for his tattered coat. So that's what we have to tell by the time we get to this. But then they had to listen to the music and the music isn't written around his idea. He's got to make it work with that. So you hear then on the sixth beat when it goes to the loop, that's when you have to put down. And it was thrilling to watch, but they would come up with, oh my God, we need stacks of papers. We need this. We need rolling architecture. And every day, props just whipped. It was incredible what we did in our three and a half week period. And since then, we've done a few more. We did, yes, yes, from scratch. And we did Moby Dick recently at Stratford, which was another you know, an 800-page novel, and Morris put it, and it was all done to um, WC. And it was beautiful. And the, you know what? Actors like doing it almost more than anything. They all want to be in Morris's movement piece. We're hoping to do... Uh, I don't know if I can say that. I won't say that. Okay. <laughs> but yes, another. <laughs> we'll wait. Uh, and, and so uh, the... 
by the end of the three and a half week yeah. period, uh, f- first of all, you had the major elements already designed. You had the which upstage sort of bank of industrial kind of windows, right? And yeah, all these pens. two huge pens yeah. and architects' desks on wheels. Right. That was kind of about, and these gears that flew in. Yes. But prop wise, we didn't know. Oh my God, we need this. We need. What about if all the secretaries have uh, five foot high stacks of papers? What if they have this? What if? And it just kept every day yeah. stuff we need because. They were making up the story as they went along. It had a general story. Uh, and then we knew that the end it ended up in an insane asylum. And, oh, oh my gosh, we need all these beds and all these beds have to be on wheels. And it was kind of the most exciting thing we ever worked on. Yeah, I can imagine. And it was a huge, huge success. Uh, was it originally a co-pro? I can't remember. Um, no, I think it was just the Vancouver Playhouse. And yeah. then and then a Canadian Stage took it on again, like I want to say almost five or 10 years later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we took it to uh, the Barbican in um, London, mm-hmm. and it was like we only did four performances, and, and it was sold out and standing ovations. And then the review came out, and it said, "These Canadians, we don't need them. We have, and I can't think of his name. We have so and so, who's a, a choreographer, movement person. And so basically, it was we don't need you. We already have so and so. That's and." Awful. And we were supposed to have a big meeting with, with Nicholas Heitner the next day to talk about stuff, and he canceled the meeting and because the reviews had come out, and the reviews kill you in London. And uh, it was really a shame. But it did travel the world. It went to San Francisco, went to Norway, it went to Australia, to Melbourne, to uh, everywhere. We never got to go with yeah. it, but it did. And that cast, are the closest cast you could ever... Still on Facebook, many of my friends are from that show and that cast. If they ever get together, it just it just bonded them like something crazy. And uh, this was at a period where we still had kind of uh, federal support for that kind of international yeah travel. Do you th- did you guys benefit from that, or was this something that I mean, because Vigil had been everywhere and you guys already had an international kind of run. Well, you know. I, I mean, you know, I just don't know those things very yeah. well. I, I would think that um, Canadian Stage and, and Vancouver Play stuff must have uh, applied for certain federal grants or something like that to travel. But, you know, I, I'm just not up on that yeah, stuff. That's okay. that's okay. No problem at all. Um, awesome. And tell me about the adaptation to, uh, again, television, right? It was a... Oh, yeah. CBC did an adaptation of The Overcoat. How, do, how did you manage? Because it's a... It really is... I mean, it's a stage... Yeah, this is something that lives in three dimensions on stage. Yeah, right? going to that kind of little box or a flat screen is a real it was, challenge. Have you ever seen the movie of it? I have not. I don't have one either. But you can rent it. You can get it at the library. Your local library actually has it. Um, it's very different. If you've never seen the stage play, I think you might really like it. If you have, you go. I miss that spectacle of twenty-two people moving because you're just on a little screen. Even though I saw it on a, a bigger screen, you know, but. Um, but Morris directed it, and I did something I'd never done before. I did um, 900 little uh, drawings of, um, what do you call it, storyboard. I storyboarded it. And every day, the fellow who was the uh, cameraman, uh, the DOP, came over to our house, and normally would have lunch, and we'd sit there the whole day and say, and in this, okay, he's walking up the stairs, and he turns, and I would draw that. And it was like a huge, huge amount of drawing. And so Morris would go in with a storyboard and they would say to him beginning every morning at 7 a.m. when we started filming, 7 a.m., um, what do you want to cut today? Mm. Not what do you want to do, what do you want to cut? And you go, oh my God. And he was, it was so tense making. I had, and I can't think of his name, a wonderful artistic, uh, I, I, I was the production designer and so he was the art director and he'd done lots of film. I'd never done any. 
Uh, and so um, basically they took the actual stage and put it into a CBC, the actual a set. And then I got to add things because we could go to locations that we couldn't really go to on stage, right. like a dock scene. And <clears throat> I got to add some pillars and stuff. It still looked very stagey. You could tell that it was a staged, you know, these new shows they're doing of sound and music. So it was obviously yeah. filmed on stage live. Yeah. It had that kind of look. Um, but I'm pretty sure that Alan Brody lit it and yeah. lit it... Um, Along with the camera and stuff like that. Because we did a couple of, um, uh, for Spirit of the West, John Mann's uh, wonderful singer in Spirit of the West, we did a couple of music videos for them. And I remember Alan Brody lighting it live as it happened. It was a one-shot kind of thing. This felt like this, that kind of thing. It was was tense-making. I don't know that I want it. I've never designed anything for film before or after. It was a strange experience. I think it's a young person's game. I think if you're at 23, you don't mind doing 16-hour days. But if you're not, I know we had a I had a discussion with uh, Marga, uh, Martha Mann, uh, whose interview just came out about a month ago, and uh, she <laughs> she stopped doing film because she couldn't be she wasn't Anne Roth who had 18 assistants on no. set right who could do this at the age of 88 or whatever whatever she is <laughs> yeah because uh, you really yeah it is a it is a tremendous amount of stress and the days are just interminable the days are interminable like literally we. We started at 7 a.m. Now, I'm not ever remotely even thinking of being awake at 7 a.m. To be on set and awake and thinking, what's the next scene? And it was like 12-hour days, and it was like, go, 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 go. For 10 days in a row. We had 10 days to film this, so, you know. That's incredible. All right, well, let's talk about some work you're doing right now. Uh, First of all, I want to talk about The Madness of King George, uh, which you just uh, just opened yesterday. Last night. Yeah, last night uh, at the Shaw Festival. Uh, It's at... The Royal George Theatre, right? Uh, quite appropriately, and you have what fifteen feet room upstage, downstage. Like- well, okay. So, the the um, director really, really wanted uh, audience members on stage. I wasn't keen on it. Interesting. Um, it, it is a set of which I'm very proud, but it is not, and I've said that to him, a set that I would have normally designed. Right. I'm not keen on audience participation. Mm-hmm. And so, and I want to control what an audience sees. I want the lighting to control it. I want the set. I like proscenium more than I like thrust, more than I like in the round, because it's a little jewel box and I can make you see this. But if the lights are, you know, this fellow wanted the lights up quite a bit and not a lot of lighting changes and a more of a globe theater kind of experience. I think that's what he was kind of going for. And, you know, it may well end up being very successful. Um, and the set looks very pretty. So he said, I want it to feel like it's, you know, an old Georgian theater. And I said, okay, then um, this is a a kind of a Victorian theater. Mm -hmm. In effect, though, I hear that in the mid-80s, Cam Porteous actually turned that movie house. Like, that's all fake. All that gold gilt pros and stuff. But you've seen pictures of my new Madness of Georgia Theater. So what I did was I took the exact color paints from the uh, color scheme from the entire theater and recreated a miniature Royal George on stage with audience boxes that I invented um, to look like Georgian theater boxes would it be. And it's a kind of a cool look, you know, and I think the people on stage get a bit of a kick out of sitting there, although the sight lines are terrible for them. Yes. <laughs> I know. Uh, it did, however, uh, I mean, even though uh, it feels like a set to you that you wouldn't have designed, that kind of perspective rendering is something that you do a lot in your work, right? Mm-hmm. It is really kind of forced. It, perspective like it's, it's not forced well okay 
It looks the, like it's those I mean, box seats are absolutely in regular. They're all the same height. It's just the perspective. Of it. But it does go to a miniature arch, right. which when there's the bigger arch in front, you sort of. Oh, sorry, I keep hitting the microphone. <laughs> it keep. Um, I do love forced perspective, though. I've used it in lots of shows where I've gone from doors that are three feet high to twelve feet high. And in this play, I was talking earlier about called Earshot that Morris wrote. That was my most fun forced perspective. It was. Um, did you ever see it? Randy Houston's start. Did yeah. At Tarragon in the yeah, extra space. Yeah. So it's this room where if you walk to the back of the room upstage, your head would actually touch the ceiling. Yeah. When you're at the front of the stage, things are in real size. There's a, a kitchen, an old Arbright kitchen table, and then a, a sink. But as the walls and there, and there are four, there were three walls and a ceiling, go in a distinct force perspective. So when time you get to the back wall. There's a little chair that's probably only two feet tall and a little couch and sweater and a little pair of jeans and a little fuse box and a little door. But the audience is still fooled because the perspective is correct. Um, until Randy first time walks up stage and picks up a pair of jeans from a little chair and they're only two feet tall, they kind of gasp. It's sort of, and I've done it in a few shows, but in the Imaginary Invalid, I did a huge perspective with this beautiful throne at the back. Then he brings it up to sit on it. It's, it's, only, it's like it's a doll's chair almost. So that's great fun to do. And that's the kind of thing you can control when you're in a proscenium. And when I'm working in thrust or... I don't know if I've ever done a show in the round. Um, I'm conscious of that woman sitting there in that awful pink parka and that yes. guy picking his nose and this guy asleep and that child. You know, I go, I don't want them in my picture. Yeah. So this was my fight with this fellow who directed the show. <laughs> I don't want those people. We even talked one time about backstage maybe having like black choir gowns for them oh, right. with different sizes that when you're up there in those things, you're kind of... But he kind of liked the idea of the moving around and stuff up there. So it was a bit of a, a battle in terms of um, yeah. our thoughts. I know at, uh, uh, at the courthouse in uh, <laughs> at the Shaw Festival, as a lighting designer, it's oh. the bane of your existence because it's the summer and all, everyone's wearing white pants. Or and they shorts. sit in the front row. I know. And you have to, but you can't cut... You can't cut light off the front row because you're going to move. You have to light somebody at the corner of the stage, so you'd end up lighting the first row up until the, you know, the chest is just. I know, and it's you frustrating as. Hell. And if it's hot in there, which it can be so hot in the courthouse that you think you'll die, yeah. so you're having a little snooze. You don't want to be caught in the light. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, so what else? Let's let's talk about. Oh, I was going to look at. Just my first notes here. Uh, the other stuff you're working on currently. Okay. Um, well, let me uh, let me just talk about kind of a time thing as well. So you, uh, in the early 80s, you designed Putting on the Ritz, and then you come back 20 years later, 25 years later, to, to work at Shaw again. Um, how did that feel? Like, did you have, do you have any connection? Was it a completely new experience? It's just like... Did you remember, uh, like, how, to bring back what you felt like in the early 80s, and what did you learn over that period? It was at the Royal George again, that, that the putting on the bits was at the Royal George. Um, and in fact, I think it was the very first show in the Royal George. Uh, but I had grown so much, as I told you, I, mean, I knew nothing when I designed that show. So by the time I came back 23 years later, I felt like, okay, I can design. Although I was very scared. I was saying that Alan Brody and Leslie McMillan, mm -hmm. Leslie McMillan was the um, general manager at the time, and I, and I love her. She works at Theatre Calgary now. Mm -hmm. They said, oh, you can do this. Because you know what? There's a fear, at least from me, 
when I lived in Vancouver that, mm, I don't know, am I, am I good enough? I'm big. Can I go to Toronto to the festivals? Can I design at Stratford and Shaw? And, you know, now that I've done a few shows in, <clears throat> in the States, like at ACT in San Francisco in this huge theater and, and in Washington's arena and stuff, you go, it's the same thing. I've never done it so for Broadway or anything, and I, you know, it'd be great to do. But I think in the long run, it would be the same thing. Mm-hmm. You're dealing with the people. If you like them, they like you, and you've got the drawings. It's. I found, oh, wait, there's nothing to be afraid of. Yeah. And in fact, I was really frightened doing my first opera. I thought, well, opera, I don't know anything about opera, and it's so huge. It's the same thing on a bigger scale. Yeah. You have a bit more, you have a higher ceiling. Yeah. You're doing it at the Queen Elizabeth Theatre instead of the Queen Elizabeth stage. So all of a sudden, you've got a 55-foot wide stage, and you've got like 40-foot high things. And, but when you're folding paper to make your model, it's the same thing. So, you know, it's not something as a young designer to be afraid of when you get offered something that seems like, oh, my God, I don't know how to do that. Because really, designing a show for a storefront or designing a show at Shaw, you still have to do the drawings. It's the same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and how about your move to Toronto? So you were in Vancouver uh, up till about 15 years ago? Yeah. Uh, early 2000s, we, right? About 13 years ago. We bought a tiny little apartment um, here. Well, the weird thing was, when we first moved here, and now prices have changed so much, oh, but, yeah. but Toronto was kind of cheap compared to Vancouver. Right. Right? We went, wow, you can get a house for the same price as a little tiny apartment in Vancouver. And we were looking at apartments here and we found a little house and we found this house that we're in right now for a really good price. And um, so we bought that and we sold our house in Vancouver eventually. Um, and um, it was a it was a transition that I just felt that we needed, we both felt we needed to make. Um, we'd be nasty work at Stratford and at Shaw and at Tarragon and at Ken Stage and at and there wasn't enough, especially after the Vancouver playoffs went, although that happened once we moved here, um, to keep us in Vancouver other than dear friends, you know. And we love to go back and do a show, but back to the show at the Arts Club or somewhere, anytime. Mm-hmm. I love being in Vancouver. Still, I still love working with the people that I've worked with for years there. But um, really, there's just not as, as not, not as much to do as there is here. It's just yeah. a bigger population. And uh, what about the difference in... Um, for those who don't work kind of across the country... You, it's really easy, especially if you work in Toronto, which is like this sinkhole of yeah. <laughs> like of ego. Uh, it's very easy to forget that things are different as out of Toronto. And and how would you compare the two communities? I mean, it's small. Vancouver is a big city, but it's still a smaller theater community, yeah. right? And it's all much more people do a lot of film out there as well. So the, yes, the community is a bit different. So how would you describe the? How did oh, you feel about coming here? Um, I I was scared to come here at first. I thought you know we'll. Doing, but now we, you know, it comes down to. I think your friends are the most important thing in the world, and it comes down to I have a lot of friends here now, and most of my friends are from theater, because you you meet people and you work with them so intensely for three or four weeks, and then you may not see them again for two years, and then eventually you start to become friends outside of that show romance that thing, you know, where you you find all these friends, you think, oh, I love them, and I never see them again. Um, so when we came here, I thought at first, oh, I'm scared, I don't know that many people, but but now I do. Um, I don't find it any different. We did we did equally excellent work mm-hmm. in Vancouver. The weird thing is, uh, this will sound strange to say, but like you kind of feel like because it's the other side of the Rockies, not a lot of people even know that you you exist or you've done that. Yeah. Kind of, yes, you know. Well, in terms of theater in Canada, you end up in Toronto. Not that there's fantastic work being done in Calgary and Edmonton and Winnipeg, and it is. Mm-hmm. It is, but you're sort of drawn here the way I guess if I was American, I would be drawn. To, I'd want to work in New York. Yeah. 
I just would want to. I was in England. I want to work in London. So if I'm in Canada, I want to work in Toronto. And I do do other shows around the country. But Morris and I made a decision 35 years ago that we were not going to be that theatre couple who... Oh, I'm doing a show in Edmonton. You're doing one in Calgary. Oh, I'm doing, oh God, I got the season at Stratford. And you're not, you know, because it's really, really hard on a relationship. And so we have not done that. Um, If, as for instance, I did the show in San Francisco and I had, uh, he talked to the artistic director too, and she had a project for him and it was fantastic. We both went Um, in Quebec City just now. I I wasn't needed. They, They don't normally bring along um, the designer, who, if it's a set they're buying that I've already designed before. But Morris kind of put it in his contract that I was going to come. And I did, and I was there for tech. And it was very handy because there were a lot of things that I had to deal with anyway. I don't know what they were going to do. Um, but we've just made this deal that we're not going to do that. And so we have traveled the world together, basically. N- not doing theater. We we go for big uh, trips usually every year like we'll go to Italy or to France or something like that if somewhere and um, but we are that theatre company who who uh, that theatre couple who light, uh, luckily can work together because we're not in competition I think it'd be very hard if, it was, if we were both actors or both writers or both designers yeah. and you were up for the same kind of job but I'm in no way threatened nor him by me mm-hmm. of what we do so we work together fantastically yeah. That's not something we talk about a lot on the, on the talk. We talk to kind of stick to the, your kind of professional resume, but life in the theater is something that is very, uh, it's a different experience and, 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 and negotiating it is not easy for some people, no. <laughs> especially if you have to, I mean, I, one of the reasons that I left the business in, you know, in 2004, uh, was because I was looking down the barrel of changes in the, in the environment, theater environment in Canada. Uh, but all, I mean, I was, I had some personal reasons, but also seeing other more senior designers to me struggle with these very problems with their relationships, with getting work, mm-hmm. with staying relevant, not getting kind of sucked up in this kind of cult of youth that happens in a lot mm-hmm. of places, mm-hmm. and especially in art, because who's the new kid on the block? And, uh, and you really have to kind of cling to the relationships you have to sort of keep what you have precious, because... There's only so much of it out there, <laughs> right? And if you're not creating your own work, yep. um, you know, or have a partner that's creating fabulous work, then you're kind of, you know, all of your friends are also all of your competitors. Uh, and so that's a very, it's something that I don't think we talk enough about maybe in theater school where everything is kind of bread. I so totally agree. Um, I think that I'm, you know, I think Morris and I are both finding that right now. It's like, hmm. I'm still, I'm a better designer every year than I was the year before. I now have, you know, 180 plays. You know, it's not like, and I I do keep up with pop culture and all that stuff. I know what's going on, but, and I I don't begrudge a new 20-year-old designer, but I ain't done yet. You know what I mean? And you're not kicking me out. Uh, Because I don't want to retire. All my friends from high school and university and stuff, who all became teachers and stuff, are all retired and I, they go, oh, how come? I, think, I don't, because, because most people who retire, retire because they don't like their job. Yeah. Or they go, oh, my God, it's the weekend. People say to me, you're having a nice weekend when I'm up, up at Lobby. I go, I don't, is it the weekend? I don't know. It doesn't make any difference to me if it's Sunday or Wednesday. And um, I love doing what I do. And so does Morrison. So I don't. Until I can't do it, I don't want to retire. I want to be 90 and doing a show. Maybe I won't do as many, you know, but that's my art. 
And I think the fantastic thing about being a designer is that you can be a, 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 an illustrator or a, a, an artist or a painter at home and do your one little thing. But I get 20, 30, 40 people creating some stupid little idea I had on a piece of paper. Right. And all of a sudden, oh my God, they're committing hundreds of thousands of dollars <laughs> to this. And I just folded some paper and you got to carry it through. And I love like the props people at the Soft Festival and the painters. I love them. And most of them have been together for about 25 years. Mm -hmm. And there's a fellow named Wayne Ryerson, who's the head of props, and Donna Harablak used to run it. And those people came from Winnipeg, like 25, and they're all, they're my age. They're in their 60s. They're in their mid-60s. And that's very unusual because often I'll be working with some young painter and they say, it was my dad's birthday. Oh, I go, how old is your dad? Oh, 58. I go, really? (laughs) And um, I'm often like way older than their parents. Mm -hmm. Um, and so to work with these people who are masters at their craft at the Shaw Festival, that's why I love working with them there and at Stratford. They've been doing it for so long. They're my age. We get along. We all we all get it. And none of them are, we're not leaving yet. You know what I mean? And so it's very hard. I think if theater schools keep cranking out designers, it's the same with cranking out anything. Where? There are only so many shows. Tarragon only does, you know, eight shows, whatever. There are only so many shows. And... Um, yeah, yeah. It's uh, I don't know if you've heard of the Designers Guild thing yes. that's going on on Facebook, uh, and Richard uh, Farron. Farron. Uh, but there's 450 members of that now, and I think I mean surely that can't be 450 working designers. But what if it is? I know. I know. <laughs> what if there's 400? Like ADC was 100 people, I think, when I was a member back in the late 90s. Uh, and I thought that was a lot. I think, what do 100 people do in Canada? I know. They go all across the country. I mean, Kevin Lamott does, you know, did the Playhouse, you know, the Belfry, and then Theatre Calgary, and then Citadel, and then, you know, when, yeah. <laughs> Winnipeg, that kind of circuit. Uh, and you go, okay, well, there's one guy, yeah. uh, and now there's three other four other people who do the same thing. Uh, there's only so much work. Um, how do you, Have you guys felt the contraction that's happened in the last 10 years? Like, how has that affected... Contraction. Uh, contraction of funding and... Yeah, uh, you know the kind of limits on production, and how, how have you guys negotiated that? Um, well, it depends on where you're working. Like if you're doing a show at Shaw, say, you probably got a pretty a pretty decent budget. Mm-hmm. If you're doing a show, I did company with Theater Twenty recently. Mm-hmm. I've never had such, a, but I was such. I just I wanted to do the project, yeah. so I took a very small fee, sure. and uh, we did it all kind of ourselves and stuff. And and I don't mind doing that at all. Work, you know, I've never done any storefront thing. But Morris is talking about saying. I just want to do my own plays. Sometimes I think, if nobody wants to do them, I'm going to produce them. Right. You know? Um, so cut back. I'm, I'm tired of seeing shows that are just um, a, a brick wall. Mm-hmm. And um, even though I'm designing two shows right now that have a brick wall in them. But I'm actually building a brick wall. <laughs> but just seeing the empty space yeah. and some lighting yeah. and three brown chairs. Yeah. You know, I know that a lot of companies go, well, it's all about the words and it's all about the story and the play, but it's theater. And to me, of course, theater has a set. Theater, I'm going to take you away. Like You don't want to see a movie where there's no location. There's no... The thing about, you know, I think it's really tough. Uh, It costs $12 to go see a movie and you can be blown away. You're in this, you're comfortable. You can eat popcorn. You can get up and go to the bathroom. You can slouch around. Um... And then you have to go sit in a theater and it's cost you 65 to to $100. It's uncomfortable. You can't get up. You're told it's 102 minutes, no intermission. If you go to the bathroom, you can't come back in. Right. And 
and you go, oh my God, and it's hot, and it cost me a million dollars, and I had to... And it's really tough. And I think that's why audiences are so much older. You know, the blue hair set is really... You go to a Wednesday matinee at the Shaw Festival, oh my goodness. And I kind of don't blame young people because like you're taking a real chance. So I think they really have to, it has to relate to them in some way and it has to be accessible and it has to be cheap enough. Um, and I think it's great when companies do, you know, you can pay your age uh, if you're under 21 or something like that or there's student matinees and stuff because otherwise you can't afford to go to theater. And, I, you know, unless I get a call, I don't go. I have the, I'm having the same experience and I've got a, I've got a, terrific job like it's a terrific job now i go to school part-time and there's costs associated i live downtown toronto right. there's costs associated with that uh, like i don't own my house but uh i looked at the prices i'm gonna go see uh saint joan tomorrow at uh the shaw and uh, i think the orchestra seats were 111 a kills, piece. Me. kills me and i thought oh i'll bring a friend and now we're spending 225 dollars oh, to see no. the show uh the, the the musicals that come into town i mean now oh yeah they're huge they, t- they cost a lot of money and you've got cast of 25 or 30 people and an orchestra to pay for so i get it but 150 to 200 dollars for a ticket no to sit at the royal alex where you're like it's an uncomfortable place to I be know. for two hours uh i just I just can't do it. I, and, yeah. and, if, and if you had kids, like say you want to go see The Lion oh, King or something like yeah. that, and you've got three or four kids, yeah. oh my God, that cost you a fortune. I'm sorry I could have tried to get you tickets for that show. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry you're being... <laughs> oh, no. No, I, no, it's okay. Kevin Lamont has, 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 oh, has helped us out. Oh, yeah, fine. Yeah. No, okay, no, no, good. No, no. We're going to go see Ask it. me. <laughs> yeah, everything's fine. I have pull there. That's yeah, only exactly. <laughs> no, no, we've got... Yeah, I still have connections. Oh, good, so we, got, we got that taken care good. of. But uh, yeah, no, that's a, and it's a conundrum. And we, I mean... Uh, I have had this discussion, and people who listen to the title Black will uh, will know that we've had a discussion about how to make theater relevant and what is the like what what constitutes something that is essentially theatrical as opposed to a movie mm-hmm. or a, you know or something else or television or YouTube video. But um, you know, I think it's the pieces like the Overcoat uh, that really are essentially theatrical. Like you they cannot are. that is written for the stage. It's designed for the stage. It's something that doesn't fit someplace else. Uh, and that's how theater is going to survive by doing those kind of works that are. Yeah, I agree because you know if you see a show, I saw a show recently. It was beautifully acted, but I didn't see any reason, and I won't say what it was, any reason why it was on stage. Mm-hmm. It was really a podcast, a radio play. Mm-hmm. It was sort of biographical, autobiographical of these people, and I thought, well, there's nothing theatrical for me to see. I'm just hearing your story, yeah. and really. If there's nothing for me to see, why am I sitting in an uncomfortable yeah. theater paying a lot of money to see this? Exactly. And and I think that we become so politically correct in so many different things now that the kind of theater that is done a lot maybe is more um, from the newspaper, kind of like this sort of mm-hmm. political stuff, and not so much about, and this will just sound so shallow, but not so much about entertainment. And I kind of want to go... I like you go to the movie really to be entertained you go to be either to laugh your head off or to be scared or be thrilled or whatever that's what you should do when you go to theater I don't think that I need to be lectured at in a with a politically correct situation that we all agree with anyway because sure, yes. this we're all artistic liberals and yes yes of course of course but I want to be thrilled or laugh my head off and I want to be entertained and uh, and that's what Morris and I often think when we're doing our plays as long as it's not boring yeah. it's the it's the one horrible thing 
because theater can be terribly, terribly boring. Yeah. You can be bored beyond all existence. That's true. That's true. <laughs> and, and, and I think that the, the other thing is that people equate that kind of entertainment with shallowness. Mm -hmm. And I don't agree. Like the emotional range that's in... Um, you know, Morris's works are like say vigil, yeah. where you where you in vigil, you, you know, I can look around in the audience in the last ten minutes of the show and see every person sobbing, and they've laughed their head off at the black comedy before that, and then they realize the heart of it, and they've been moved, and they often come up and say, "My old aunt," and they'll talk about their mom or whatever, mm -hmm. and it really moved them and it touched them, and it was and it was funny, and it was a theater piece that could, yes, you could do it as a film, but it would be, we've talked about it, it would be strange because. All of a sudden, well, should we have seen him travel across? Should they ever go outside? Where does he go shop? It doesn't yeah, matter. Yeah, yeah. When you're enclosed in this one magical little room, it can all take place in there, even though a year and a half goes by. When you go into a film, you'd have to open it out. Yeah. So that's, a, I agree, a piece of theater should be a piece of theater. But I don't agree with the thought, which is being promoted now some places, that we should always be conscious that we're in a theater. Oh, yeah. We should always be breaking the fourth wall, always referring to the audience, uh, keeping the lights up, doing this kind of stuff and being, you know, we're in a theater and oh, how am I addressing you and I'm passing this off to an audience member, stuff like that. No, mm -hmm. I want to be taken away. I want to, to be as thrilling for me as when I go to a movie and I, I scream because I, I think I'm right, you know, it ha it's really happening there. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember the first time I saw Death Trap on stage, <laughs> uh, somewhere in the States, I, I literally jumped up and I, was, I just screamed and sw I screamed when this guy broke through the door because I was so into it. And that doesn't mean that it has to be a realistic set. I think that all, all the sets that I do, I try to make them, well, theatrical in that they're a bit larger than life, even if it's just an extension that the door, instead of six, seven and a half, is nine feet tall. And everything's a bit stretched. I like to make things a little bit larger than life. Or if I'm doing a realistic set, which for a while I fought against, but now I don't. I don't mind doing a realistic set with realistic walls and stuff, but I want the detail to be incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, just incredible. And that's the fun for me. What about, that was, reminds me of Girl and the Goldfish Bowl, mm -hmm. I think. That took a place in what looked like, I can't, I didn't see it, but it looks like a, a boiler room or a basement of a... Oh, that's the dishwashers. Oh, the dishwashers. That's what it was. Sorry, yeah, okay, the dishwashers. The yeah. dishwashers takes place. Yeah. In, in, very re very realistic set, but... Very realistic. Yeah. But the grubbiness of that, I had so much fun that... Stuff only actors could see. I would, by the telephone, I would have written little notes and taxi notes and phone numbers and, and, and graffiti. And, and I, I took um, coffee grounds and sprayed them all, and cocoa grounds and sprayed them all over the set and, and put uh, uh, crumbs. And, like It's just the fun of that dirtiness. Mm -hmm. I can do a beautiful, clean Art Nouveau set or a filthy set. And they're both equally fun for yeah. the set deck. Yeah, exactly. It also it also makes a difference uh, with resolution. Like even though we may not be able to pick it out, you can still look at it and it feels like you can imagine that if you zoom in, yeah, it would feel it would be a say, be a fractal of what you're seeing. Like yep. it would make sense as opposed to coming in and seeing you know uh, sponging on the wall or some yes. some sort of theatrical you know hate that. mechanism. Bad wood grain. <laughs> yes, bad wood grain. <laughs> ah, bad wood the grain. Worst. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Oh, well, that's terrific. I think, do you, uh, do you want to talk about uh, other things you're doing right now? Um, um, sure. Very uh, quickly. Okay, so as I said, picture this, the mm -hmm. new play that Morris Panish and Brenda Robbins have co-written based on this Hungarian uh, novel about, takes place in the 1920s in a uh, film, of silent film era. Really fun. And then um, Morris and I are doing a new show at Sheridan uh, College where all these great musical theater students come out of now and come from away, just came from there. Yeah. 
and uh, it's called Trapdoor, and Morris has written it with these two wonderful young women, Annika and Britta Johnson. They're incredible composers. Uh, and we're doing that, and then I'm doing a show in Washington, D.C. called Sovereignty, uh, based on, on, on Native Indian uh, rights, and it takes place, it's, I don't know how I'm going to do it, it takes place like in 1870 and 2017, instantly, back and forth, back and forth, like every four seconds, we're literally, it's Benjamin Franklin, and now it's somewhere on an Indian reserve, and now it's some, I have no idea, I have no idea. <laughs> and we're doing, um, Morris and I are doing the opera of the overcoat. Right. And that is, a, he's written the libretto, and it's a new score, and it's beautiful, and it will be done in Vancouver and Toronto. Right. Uh, and there was one last question. Well, two, there's, there's, I, we usually wrap the, wrap the show up with uh, with, a, with talking to, to actual theater students about what they think they should, their training should be, et cetera. But I did want to ask a question that I had left over from Vigil, that you had done the show so many, a number of times, but you had reimagined the set a number of different times. Is that correct? You, no, you had... that's incorrect. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, no, I, I have done it a number of times, but you know what? I've always done the same set, same with, seven, same with Seven Stories. It's not a thing of why reinvent the wheel, and it's not a thing of that there couldn't be a better or a different set. It's just that I like this set. I really thought about it the first time I did it, and it works, and it's kind of modular. And you know, the, there's, in the vigil set, there's these three pieces that can move. And I love the idea of this old woman who blocked out her world with newspaper, and I didn't want to lose that. And also the set leans in like this lean, it just sort of, mm-hmm. it, it sort of towers over her. And it's this old attic. And the same with Seven Stories, as I was telling you earlier. It's, just, it's a Magritte painting of these clouds in the sky, and I like that. So I have talked to directors, but they, when I've done it before, different places, but we've always actually ended up with the same thing. Mm-hmm. I did do a show called 2000 once, written by Joan McLeod. I did it at the Tarragon Theatre, and then I did it at the Vancouver Playhouse, with Morris directing it once and Patrick MacDonald from Green Thumb Theatre mm-hmm. directing it the second time. And it was totally different. And that was great, great fun. I mean, it was an absolutely different show. Right, right. So I, it's not like there is only one idea for a show. Yeah, and and with the opera of the overcoat, are you taking the same approach? Is it going to be very similar, or it is very similar? And I think maybe I mentioned to you earlier that um, I designed Sweet Charity at Shaw Festival, and I suggested that this set is pretty close to my old opera. It, it was all white, but it was all mechanical and 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 the same sort of period and all these. Uh, um, different units that if we painted them black and rusted them up and I flew in a few windows I could make it work mm-hmm. and it really helped with the budget and so they 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 bought that set and I'm going to have to I haven't got there yet but I'm going to have to sort of reimagine how that's going to work yeah. I think you can you can see it right there this is the model <laughs> oh, yeah. I'll show you later yeah, okay. <laughs> alright well then let's wrap this up with some questions about theatre training because I know that your training was non-traditional but non-existent like, non-existent <laughs> like non-traditional okay. better just because a lot of people sort of like put together their design training at the beginning of their career in I the 60s so, and 70s. Right? Yeah, exactly. But I think now, I don't think there'd be a single, no. you know, I get people saying, hey, can I assist with you? Can I? And they've all gone through, I mean, they've gone through Ryerson, they've gone through National, whatever. They have all the training. They have all the CAD, the model making, all the skills that I had to, I just taught myself. Yeah. I think I met, we had a, a conversation at the Bellows, which is a monthly uh, production uh, panel discussion that's hosted at uh, at various venues in the city. But uh, we had a discussion last week about design, and there was uh, one of the designers whose name I'm now just forgotten, uh, who came out of OCAD, and so she was a sculptor. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was her media in OCAD, and she sort of parlayed that into theater. So right. it still is happening. 
yep. from time to time. And I know that I've worked with people who have come out of the I art world. I think I know who you mean, but I don't know your name. I know. I know. I, I, well, <laughs> we'll find out in the, I'll, I'll make sure it's in the show right. notes and I'll make sure to mention it in the yeah. preamble. So they'll have known who am I talking about. Um, but uh, what, what would you suggest? Like everyone has all these skills. Do you find that they are missing anything when they come out? Like like drawing skills, I think, is not something I did at Ryerson. Even I mean, as a lighting designer, why would you need them? But no. I really missed not having them, right? I think that um, I think I'm really lucky because I, I I did do life drawing and and uh, the weird thing about when I went to university, what was popular at the time? So we're talking early seventies was called hard edge painting. Mm -hmm. So it was simply masking tape and you would mm -hmm. masking tape and do these lines and then the color that was up against it was what was important. Right. And then you'd take off all the masking tape and your picture was done. It was sort of sort of weird. I never would do it now. <laughs> but um, yeah, I do say to a lot of students, I think that you should learn to draw only because it's something that I, I do. I draw everything in pencil. I draw all my props and I draw them in... in uh, in perspective and I draw them in a sort of a 3D look and, and I like the weighted line and I understand of course that everything has to be done in CAD now and I never learned to do it and I'm not saying I'm too old to learn it but I just, I draw on my iPad as I was showing you earlier, I draw everything on my iPad now and I love drawing on my iPad and, and otherwise I draw with pencil and I think it's important, especially for a costume designer, mm -hmm. To be able to convey the look of the material, the folds, and I like it. It doesn't. It doesn't matter. But I know actors like it too. If you can sort of draw their, their a face, some hands. You're not. You're not clumsy, and you go. Well, I'm not a very good drawer, but here I'm a pretty good sewer. I just think drawing. I think that being an artist is a talent, the way being a musician. Is, and I don't think. I think that everybody can learn to draw technically better. Well, this just sounds so conceited, but I think that some people are, are, are artists start off with this way. Some people are scientists. Some people are good at music. Some people are good at math. I couldn't add two and two. I mean, but um, so I don't expect that everybody is going to be an amazing drawer, although you could still be an amazing designer. But I think it really would help to have that basic understanding, knowledge of skill that you can quickly do a sketch and say, what about this? Because people get that. Here's a little pencil sketch of the finished look of this table. What do you think? Yeah, I get that. Other than CAD, which to me is very, when you're showing that kind of, it's very cold. It's very, there's no weighted line. There's no feeling of the the warmth or texture. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, any advice you have for people who are just starting off? Um, like, uh, I, I don't, I'm not really interested in the question of whether people should, because I think we've answered that question a lot on the, t on the title block. But um, any advice you have for people who are committed to going into the theater? Like, what should they concentrate on how, like, how do you, how does one develop one's taste? Um, and, uh, you know, how, how would you, how would you advise yeah. people to approach that? Well, first of all, I think young people going to theater, they'll get, you know, how do I, how do I get a job? Well, I would say just volunteer for anything. Yeah. Just your friend is doing a show at the fringe, then do it. You haven't even got a hundred bucks. Well, then do it with um, 20 green plastic bags and three red rubber balls whatever do be inventive with cheap material and get yourself seen and get yourself known that wow that was kind of interesting so don't do a fringe show where again it's just two brown chairs right. do something and volunteer and then and then try to start to ask if you can in some way help out at a, you know you can't help out in the theater because it, it's all i got I went to the UPS store to print out some drawings yesterday, and this girl said, oh, I love these. And I, I, said, I said, actually, I said, can I help you? Can I assist you? Because she was studying at York University, and she was studying art, and she said, oh, I'd love to be your assistant. I went, well, I'm sorry, you can't, because you can't just come on stage and paint with me, because it's right. all union stuff. But um, 
I think for young people, I think if they just just do as much as you possibly can, be as creative and innovative and odd and weird and different, that your design will stand out in some way. Well, you've certainly been, you're certainly a representative of that because your work stands out <laughs> as something you. that's extraordinary. Well, so, I know what I was going to say. Sorry. Yeah. I, I have always envied artists who have at some point in their career found a style that I, and my favorite painter is Raoul Dufy. Do you know who he, Raoul Dufy? No, no. D-U-F-Y. Raoul Dufy is a French painter. And he still influences people. It's a sort of a, it's a quick sort of sloppy style with a, drawing on top of it that kind of misses the color. It's so beautiful. And I draw a little bit like him. Um, you could, you would always know that was a defeat drawing. Um, I'm envious of artists who have developed a style that you could go that instantly, that's a such and such, that's so and so. And, and most great artists have done it. Although there are artists like Picasso who went through so many different styles, you know. And I don't know that you find that in theater that much, but you say you can recognize myself. In some ways, you can't, even though this, takes place on a, a ship in 1956 and this takes place in, in a Russian border. You know, mm -hmm. there's something about the person's aesthetic, I guess, that comes through. I have a certain sense of color. I like to limit my color schemes. I like to limit my color palette. I don't like a show that has pink and brown and green. You know, mm -hmm. uh, I will say to the costume designer often, let's talk about what color, you know, for picture this, I'm doing this turquoise set, turquoise and gold. And so I've got all these paint swatches and I sent them to Dana Osborne and, and she's talking about what colors, and we talk about what colors will go on that set. Right. I don't like costumes that come on that are all of a sudden just sort of any everyday kind of thing. I like to create a world that um, is monochromatic in some ways. Yeah, sure, of course, of course. Well, that's a lesson for us all. Thank you so much. You're welcome. I think that we'll just wrap it up there. Okay, thank that's you so much. It was thank really you. fun. Awesome. That was designer Ken McDonald speaking to me from his home in Toronto in May of 2017. Next time, either another episode of The Bellows or an interview with lighting designer Alan Brody. I've not quite decided yet, but uh, they'll be out soon. The music for this podcast is by Vern Good with voiceover by Gabriel Cropley. Please go to Apple Podcasts and give us a review. It'll help get the word out about this podcast and share the history of theater design in Canada. And you can follow us on Twitter at TheTitleBlockCA and on Facebook.com slash TheTitleBlockPodcast. You can send comments and requests by email to TheTitleBlock at gmail.com. And don't forget that if you like the show, support us on Patreon.com. Feel free to share this with your friends, colleagues, students, and teachers or listen to it while you wonder if The Last Call is actually a documentary. I mean, have you been listening to the tweets? of that idiot president I'm Michael Cruz and I'll see you next time on the title block Um, uh, yeah, the, yeah, oh. I'm of two minds. Like I understand writing in cursive and everyone says, well, what if, you know, they use the apocalyptic scenario. Well, what if everything just sort of stops working? You know, if everything stops working. The last thing we're going to have to worry about is not being able to write in cursive. Like think about water <laughs> and exactly. power and exactly. heat and everything and food. So that's not, you know, cursive, the death of cursive. Well, you know, McLean method of writing, you know. Yes, exactly. Um, and I, I mean, I, I've just recently, 
uh, Morris gave me for my birthday, and I, I really wanted them, bought a bunch of beautiful fountain pens, yes. calligraphic fountain yeah, pens. Yeah, yeah, And I used to write, in when I was in university, in pure italics and calligraphy. Like That was mm-hmm. the way I wrote, and I loved it. And then I just got away. My, my writing is a scribble now, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and um, more print writing, kind of a combination. Mm-hmm. But I actually like handwriting, and if I slow myself down, I love writing beautifully with a fountain pen. Mm-hmm. So... You know, no, we don't need. It's like we don't need a video store anymore, do we? We don't need to have the cursive handwriting. But like, and some things, and maybe we don't need taxis anymore. Right? Yeah, exactly. I only go Uber. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, all my labor friends would be like freaking out, but that's okay. 